0: Welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast that occasionally looks at movies on the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. This week, we are rounding up our season of... Andrew, don't you dare break into that Rodney Dangerfield impression. If you do, we're going to do a season of Rodney Dangerfield impressions, just to prove you wrong. We're doing our back-to-school season, looking at the films on the... Irish Leaving Cert curriculum, but we're also overlapping and taking a look at the only film of the five that we have covered this month that is on the IMDb 250 Elliot Kazan's On the Waterfront, a 100%er, knocking that off the list. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, joining me as always, is my co host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to this discussion and um, happy when our season is gone. Yeah. How about you, Darren?
0: I'm I'm good. There was about like a three hundred percent more Rodney Dangerfield impressions than I expected there to be. Um but it was it was fun. And this is the last time for this season heading off to start his own podcast. We're gonna call it a spin-off podcast. But the fantastic Connor Murphy, how are you, Connor? I'm good. I
2: thought I'd start today with a little um little poem, <clears throat> if you will. What kind of poem, so bear with me a second. <clears throat> okay. So come brothers and sisters, for the struggle carries on. The internationale unites the world in song. So comrades, come rally for this is the time and place. The international ideal unites the human race. I thought that would be something just to get us going and get us in the mood for today's discussion. Tremendous.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Round of applause. Uh, It's also worth noting that there is a similar poem that was recited on Broadway, which was Kazan, Kazan, he's your man, hire him as quickly as you can to refer to if you needed a script fixed, if you needed a play performed Alia Kazan was the man to go to. That laugh you heard, that leading the applause, shouting "strike, strike, strike!" from the front of the room. The wonderful Donald Clark from the Irish Times. How are you, Donald?
3: I'm very well. Uh, boys, lovely to talk to you all. Ah,
0: fantastic. So we're doing a I was, season looking I was just
1: at thinking like we're we're probably doing this wrong. Like we we haven't asked Connor to join the 250 universe of podcasts <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Join, join our media company uh, uh, our, uh, our network I think is what the kids call
0: yeah, it these yeah, days. yeah, yeah.
2: yeah well my my own 20 minute podcast that, 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 I've, that I've ready to go I'll, we, we can put them under your banner so they can have a 20 minute taster <laughs> and a peritif <laughs> with my little podcast and then they can go into the full dinner of your how long are these four or five hours six hours four,
0: yeah about aboutish um, what we find is that like generally people come on the show and say like we really enjoyed it we you want to launch your own podcast and then we will outlast them by several hundred episodes. <laughs> yes. Um, but Donald, we are talking you're about the Simpsons, the you're
3: the Simpsons of podcasts. <laughs> you turn around, you're still there, you're still there plugging away. The, the um, when were we
0: good? Every, yeah,
1: every second week. I think they do have seasons, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Um, So, Donald, this is a season covering the films on the Irish Leaving Cert exam, which is the end of school exam. Again, I'm assuming every week that some Americans are going to tune in and be vaguely (laughs) confused by the concepts we're talking about. This might actually happen this week because we're obviously talking about On the Waterfront, which is a very important American film. But at the end of our secondary school, there's an exam. Students sit. It determines whether or not they get to college. It is a formative experience for many, many Irish people. And as part of that, we study, obviously, English, Irish and Maths. But English in particular is the subject that we're focusing on because that's where the film element is. Do you remember what you studied for your English Leaving Certificate?
3: Oh, well, sure. Um, uh, the novel was Wuthering Heights, um, the, uh, the Shakespeare was King Lear. We also did. There was also a series of modern novels that there was like eight or ten modern novels, and you could. There was a general. I think I remember. Connor may know this. If I recall correctly, there was a general question on the modern novel which you could address on any one of those novels that you chose or more than one if you chose to pick I can't now having said that remember what was on the list of modern novels as it were but those were the two big things and then of course there was a selection of poetry and there was there was uh, soundings which interestingly of course in the last or sort a of, 10 or 15 years somebody um uh, uh, republished uh, and everyone remembers as the collection of there was three soundings right there was a prose a uh, poetry and short stories. And we had those three collections. Um, and a lot of those poems, I mean, certainly... Um, I can remember about being studying English in Trinity College and um, there's this sort of thing that people used to ask you, your favourite poem was and you'd find yourself like, you know, say oh, I'm a great fan of Fern Hill by uh, Dylan Thomas or I'm a great fan of J. Of, uh, Alfred, J. Alfred Prufrock by it and you inadvertently find yourself um, quoting poems you'd actually read in soundings um, for your leaving cert rather than <laughs> stuff you'd actually done for your um, <laughs> undergraduate course in Trinity College Dublin but I mean, I would say I would say that, that in terms of the effect that that had on me I would think, actually, what I I trace back my enthusiasm, particular enthusiasm for literature, back a little further, probably to the intercert, which is has not existed since what mid eighties. Yeah,
0: now uh, the junior cert, yes, it is the the exam that you sit. In yeah, the I think second. it's, it's the
2: junior cycle, lads. It's moved on. It's the junior, oh. junior cycle. <laughs> <Interserf>, <laughs> well,
1: t- yeah, time junior comes surf. for us
2: all, Donalds. Um,
1: <laughs> when, when I did, think America. Um, America's Next Top Model. They also have cycles.
2: Yes, they? that's right. Okay. <laughs> when, that's where they got the idea.
3: They, that's where they yeah. got it. From. Yeah. When did the insert cease to exist? I, I'm saying late eighties, early nineties. was a long time ago, right?
2: Yeah, late late eighties. And they try right. to bring in kind of T Y for everybody. Um, right. So I was supposed to be the last year that did it. I, um, but then they decided, no, you, you won't. We, we won't introduce yeah. it just yet. So I did the I, I actually did the insert year twice. The third year, I did like two preps for it. I did Merchandise King Lear. Or, or Julius Caesar. Yeah. Well, the interesting things about soundings, though, is that that was just like a holding textbook. That wasn't oh, supposed to really? be the diff- Yeah. yeah <laughs> it yeah, lasts uh, for decades. Yeah, it was, sure. <laughs> it was like, we'll put this out whilst we come up with a, with a real thing. But they yeah. never came up with anything else. <laughs> but the, the, the best question in the short story collection was I can't remember what the short story was. I have it over there, but I'm not going to get up. And it was uh, Do you like this short story? If you said no, read the story again.
3: <laughs> okay. that's how we used that's how we used to teach teach children exactly or teach students like you will if you don't enjoy this this work there's something wrong with you but I, I brought that up beatings
0: will continue until morale improves
3: <laughs> exactly i brought that up because i mean i would say that people are very critical i mean obviously a funny I column that i wrote in the week the recording this yes, that um not the week it comes out uh in the irish times is about um people ranting about Uh, literature being overrated and basically working out uh feuds that they've been carrying on since um however long ago it was they were in in school or in high school in american (laughs) terms and still giving out about how much (coughs) that they hate um dickens or jane austen or whoever it might be i would say i mean you know sorry to be an old desperate old fogey but i mean i studied great expectations um uh, in the intercert uh and that started an enthusiasm which exists to this day and you know over the last you know the succeeding forty years that I read everything that Dickens wrote and have gone back and read a few of those, um reread a few of those. So I can't really say I've got any criticism about the rather old fashioned bookish way that I was taught in either of those two courses. But anyway, get back to your to, back to your original question. Yeah, it was King Lear, which I can't complain about, which I later saw in a number of times, including with uh, the first time Anthony Hopkins did it, at, and um, I was happily sitting there in the National Theatre in the late eighties when he was uh, considerably younger than I am now. I would say actually that he did it again <laughs> uh, decades later when he was more the age we expect King Lear to be. Um, and Wuthering Heights, which I can't complain about either, which again is a you know novel that I've re- reread many times since and uh, enjoyed the film versions of, of course, as well. And I was well taught, I would say, as well, that um, uh, uh, by um, his name was uh, Richard Johnson, Doctor Johnson, uh, uh, amusingly, yes, he later became doing a PhD when uh he was there and he's still still alive I say still alive he's still in bristling health as far as I'm aware and he was a very good teacher and I had nothing to complain about about my education in Limerick to be honest like if I were I mean this may be one reason uh, along with complete lack of talent that I've never managed to write a great Irish novel because I have to say when it came to education I had a relatively happy education which I I can't much complain about
0: um Okay, so let's get to something that maybe you can complain about, says Darren, the master of the segue. (laughs) Um, This is the season finale of our season looking at the films in the Irish Leaving Cert curriculum. Um, I did flag this with you ahead of time so this isn't an out-of-left-field question. I kind of already know the answer. We've talked in previous episodes two weeks ago we talked about Diego Maradona uh, and we we asked whether or not a documentary belongs on the Leaving Cert curriculum for film. We then talked about Last week, we talked about Mustang and the possibility of there being certain cultural signifiers in a Turkish film that may or may not be easy to parse for an Irish audience that doesn't have the context. And this week, season finale time, we're going to ask the big question, Donald, how do you feel about film on the... English leaving CERT curriculum?
3: Well, I would preface everything I say by the fact that I, that, I, that I am not an educationist, I'm not a teacher, I am not in this classroom and to, to see how it is taught. Um, uh, I am absolutely certain that Connor and his colleagues do a very good job of investigating every corner of this and integrating it in with the literature programme. Uh, and I would also add that, you know, whenever I I'm invited onto a radio program with um, some right-wing maniac who is decrying like some film that they're trying to ban in the states. I always say I'm not going on unless that person has actually seen the bloody film. And in a sense, I haven't seen the film here because I am not in a position. So I'm an utter hypocrite by even commenting upon that. But yes, what you're getting at, after all those, um, after all that, <laughs> that vast preface, kind of trying to excuse myself of my bigotry is not quite the word, but my belligerent attitudes, at least, is that I do have reservations about film being taught on what is essentially a literature. Course, um, because it's not literature. I mean, it's just as simple as that. These are not works of literature. Um, as I've said in various kind of conversations about this over the years on the social media or wherever else, I can fully understand why, as part of a literature course, you might teach a screenplay. You know that is a piece of writing, but it seems to me that that if if you, within the, that context, um, teaching a, f- a film uh, is rather like in t- teaching a teaching Zeffirelli's version of Romeo and Juliet rather than teaching Romeo and Juliet as a piece of literature. Obviously, there are, that's a slightly facetious example in that obviously a screenplay is written specifically for a film, whereas a play is a theory, okay. whereas a play is written to be, to be performed over and over again in various different interpretations. And, of course, when it comes to what we talk about in film, we talk about cinema, what distinguishes one film from another, what makes a film function Screenplay, you know, I mean, I'm sorry for all the writers tuning into this, but it really is only one part of what makes the film work. Um, it is admittedly hard to make a great film from, from a bad screenplay, but not entirely impossible. Orson Welles did it once or twice uh, with, some, with some standard material, but and particularly, for example, the film that we're talking about today, we're going to be talking about the music is a vital part of this film. Um, uh, the cinematography is certainly a vital part of this film, with a very distinguished cinematographer working on this picture, and obviously the acting. I mean, you're talking about on the waterfront are going to have a great deal of conversation about the acting, and those things are not things that are part of the critical conversation when you're talking about a work of literature. Now, I do understand, obviously, that within that framework, as when you're writing comparatively, then clearly you can use... Film to set into context other works of literature. I mean, you could, for example, be talking about On the Waterfront and compare it with *Of Mice and Men, because in some senses you have that similar relationship with a gentle giant in there, though, to be fair to um, the protagonist <laughs> on the waterfront, he's not actually. Terry Malloy. To be fair to yeah. Terry in this case, he, he isn't actually um, develop, development, developmentally challenged, but um, I'm just using that as a rough example. Clearly, there's somewhere. But I do have reservations with the notion of teaching a film within a literature course and thereby implying in some sense that it's work it's work of literature it's not and that is not in any way obviously i wouldn't say this given what i do for a living say that that makes it any less or any more than a novel or a play or a poem it's just something else in the same way that a symphony is something else um, in the same way that, you know, a, a football match is something that'll <laughs> pieces about it. But um, that's, that remains my reservation that I haven't really had anyone successfully talk me out of it yet. Until
2: now. Until now.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that seems like a cue. Connor.
2: I'm sorry, but I've always agreed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you kind of have, actually, to be fair, but I've talked to you on Twitter about this once yeah. twice. You kind of have, yeah. I have. Um, okay, to to defend its place... Or to explain, maybe, explain. Uh, before it came on the Leaving Cert, film was only in two other places. It was like this very small question, the art exam, that uh, talking to our teachers at the time, they rarely touched because they had no idea what was going to come up. Anything could come up. Mm. Like this year, they could be talking about the use of blue in Avatar and they, they just wouldn't have a clue. Anything could come up. And the other area, tellingly, it came up, was in the ordinary level in the junior cert. So it was after the inter cert, the junior cert, and it was a small little option from a play or film you have studied, answer the following question. So it's one tiny little element of that. Right. So what they wanted to do, obviously, is they wanted to elevate film. They wanted to include film somewhere in the curriculum, in the whole school world. And they thought, because like it is in a lot of, at the time, late nineties, it would have been in a lot of English courses, Mm. you know, BA undergraduate English courses. There would have been a film. That's where I first studied film in UCC under the great Gwenda, Gwenda Young. And, that's so. That's where it was. So they just obviously decided we needed to go somewhere. We put it in there straight away when it happened. I was just was, I my first year teaching was teaching the new Leaving Cert, and straight away I I looked at the films. The films were awful, mm. and they kind of indicated that the people, most of the people, not all of them, the third man was on it, but the rest were mediocre beyond beyond description. Um, they just probably didn't have a fully full grasp of of film, mm. except for the one person who said, "God, we have to have the third man. Let's put something good on." And my reservations were exactly as Donald has explained. Film isn't English. Film's got so many things. And my reservation was quite clear because although I'd done a master's in UCD, I knew that I didn't know art. So I can't. Mm. So at the time, I've tried to educate myself since then. But when you're talking about the use of colors and, and the framing, and I knew that there was a big gap in my knowledge that if I'd studied art, I'd probably be able to explain this a bit better at the time. I feel a bit more, much more comfortable now doing it because I've, I've I've kind of studied and that was after doing it uh, as part of my undergraduate and, and doing a master's. So I still knew that there was a gap there. So I'm thinking, if I have the gap there, what does the Every Joe Soap have? Sure. And, and I was proven to be correct. And also, what the hell is colour, <laughs> the use of colour in a visual <laughs> image got to do with English? It has mm-hmm. nothing got to do with yeah. English whatsoever. So not only is there a gap in in most of our teachers' knowledge, there's also, that's not relevant to what we're trying to teach. So, Ultimately, what will happen is the film becomes reduced down. I said this before, becomes reduced down to narrative characters and theme in a very broad sense. Yeah. And you don't really have to teach it as film, which is a massively lost opportunity. Now, most teachers do teach it as film and we've all gotten better in a couple of decades since. But it's still I, I think it's it's an indication of the respect or the the, the the lack of respect of the time for film, but also the knowledge that there's obviously somebody going, look, we have to teach film. Film's important. and Because I even remember going to CPD at the time. And there was, uh, well, I won't say who it was, but there was somebody uh, high up. What's CPD? Uh, Continuous oh, yeah. Professional Continuous. Development. Sorry. Okay.
1: Professional, yeah.
2: Continuous so. Professional Development. And part of that was the guy, and he basically sat at the time. He was the, 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 the sage in front of us, and he had all these qualifications. <laughs>
1: Darren's going to be audited, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, now that he reveals he hasn't heard of CPD uh, continuous professional development. Yeah. This sage,
2: this, this man from I just Manhattan. signed a declaration. <laughs>
0: you act as if this podcast has improved in any way, shape or form. But anyway, sorry. But he, was, for- he,
2: was, he was immediately derisive of film being taught at all in school. Not just in English, but at all. Right. And I was kind of sitting there going, what? So no, no, it's just pure entertainment. Ugh. And a lot of teachers for the first decade, mm. I would say, saw a film as a, a gap and a break and something entertaining to have a little chat about. Mm. Uh, so all those reasons, I always felt it's it it doesn't fully fit. Now, I said this the last time that I read, uh, since then I've read a book by a French writer called, um, I think it's Antoine Burgla, but His surname is Burgla, anyway, B-E-R-G-A-L-A. And he talks about how films should be in, all aspects of second level. So it can be in English once it's somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else. And then all aspects of it then can be taught fully, etc. cetera. Um, and there's a new course coming up and uh, 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 drama, film and theater. And it's common knowledge that I'm the ASTI rep on that course. So I can't actually right. say too much about it. Unfortunately, <laughs> especially as a journalist here. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> but, what a scoop. <laughs> but I, have, I before I was Before I was on the committee, I did tweet, and it's the only thing I'll say. I did tweet, and i I was. I, my quote is also printed in the Times before I was on the committee. That I thought this was a missed opportunity, and that film they they should have done drama and film separately. Right. Again, putting them together again dilutes both of them. Yeah. What? Um. So, yes. Yeah, so that's. So I agree with in general. So after all that, not. I in general I agree with Donald, but my solution would be to have it everywhere and kind of have its own subject as well. Yeah. Fair enough.
1: Yeah. I. I... And it it makes me wonder kind of how English teachers feel about the play being on, as as in it and it, should drama be uh, the subject under which kind of you know you study a play, or like like obviously there there is there isn't a a a like a natural place for it in the Irish Leaving Certificate because as far as I'm aware there is no such subject as. Um, as, as drama. There's no such subject
2: but, as drama, nothing like that.
1: But it, do, does anyone feel uncomfortable about the the, the, problem, the, uh,
2: the problem teachers have always had with plays, but it's also the solution to what you're saying. The problem is that what we would love to study would be an actual production because your play is supposed to be performed drama. and not read. So can we study a production? Um, but because that's just not, it's not feasible. It's not equitable. Mm. Not every school will be able to see the same quality production. Maybe some schools might not be able to see a production, etc., etc. Sure. So that means we just study the, the written text. The text. So that becomes the solution. <laughs> that becomes literature, as Donna said, so you're studying the screenplay. So, you know, the, the, the problem is also the solution as to why it, it finds its place in, in English, I think.
1: Yeah. And the, 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 the idea about the film being everywhere, I think it, it's, it, it allows you to study film better, but it also... Uh, through through different use of media, it allows you to study the subjects in those
2: study those subjects better. Yeah, but you see, who if you go into a film set, who are you going to meet? You're going to meet you. You meet your actor, director, and cinematographer. You also meet a guy pushing a trolley. <laughs> you, you, you know, yep. you, you meet a <laughs> caterer. You meet, you meet everybody, all walks of life you meet there And I said it the last time That a secondary school is a production Is a studio <laughs> A studio waiting to happen Because you've all the elements right there Down to special effects from the science department So you've just a little element in each one um, Which isn't that difficult I don't think to beat to, to bring in I, I went thought. You, know.
0: you know who else you might need to meet on a film set a teamster <laughs> <laughs> which is a nice segue into talking about the film that we are ostensibly here to discuss today which is On the Waterfront the 1954 film the Best Picture winner Best Director winner nominated for 12 Oscars winning 8 of them very famously 3 of the Oscars that it lost were in the Best Supporting Actor category suggesting that it may have even split its own vote yeah. the other loss was uh, Leonard Bernstein's score which I'm sure we will talk about later on. But Connor, we as we've been talking our way through this as the teacher, as somebody who has experience with this stuff, have you ever taught on the waterfront and have you ever thought about <laughs> teaching on the waterfront?
2: You know the answer to this. I do. I'm, I do my research. No, I have never taught on the waterfront and I have no intention of ever teaching it. And my reasons are purely personal. And as a good union man, I will not be teaching on the waterfront and a, a, a Kazan's apology for naming names I won't do it and I'm I not going to do don't
0: it don't think it's an apology We'll get into this When we get into the floor <laughs> zone But I think apology Would be the wrong word I would use Not
2: apology No, apology is the wrong word
0: Yes No, that's
2: it, I That's my problem with it It's not an apology It's it's his reasons It's his fight back I have a quote from him somewhere I might get get to that in a minute But yeah, it's not, it's not Actually, you know what I'll get the quote now Because it's in this little book Hold on It's got a swear word So be prepared with your oh, beeper get,
0: we're getting a... Oh, we don't do that anymore. We're yeah. now... Explicit. You don't
2: do that anymore. Oh, if I'd known that, I'd have been no. swearing constantly. <laughs> X-rays. On the Waterfront. On the Waterfront was my own story. Every day I worked on that film, I was telling the world where I stood, and my critics to go and fuck themselves. So I think that's... Yeah. So no, I won't be teaching it. I've had arguments with okay. other colleagues and um, other... Yeah, about this before. So you're essentially
3: yeah. you are essentially being um, Ed Harris and Amy Madigan famously sitting on their hands um, at... Um, uh,
0: the Lifetime Achievement Award in
3: 1999. <laughs> spectacularly yes exactly. They're theatrically sitting on their hands and not, not applauding whenever you got the Lifetime Achievement Award in 99? That's, uh, yeah. That's the yeah. clip I show. That's
2: the clip I show. that clip <laughs> yeah. every single yeah. time.
0: And, and I mean like again you have the full range of emotions where like Warren Beatty is standing and clapping Meryl Streep is standing and clapping. Steven Spielberg the man who sits perfectly in the Middle of Hollywood is clapping <laughs> but remaining seated, yeah, exactly um, splitting the best of both worlds.
3: But I, I, I really, I do really admire Harrison and Madigan that they, they, they I mean, they're, they're great actors and they prove it in this sense. They can communicate a greater degree of um, objection and uh, of of a, of a positive boycott than anybody else around them. Um,
0: but Donald, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time you saw on the waterfront? Do you have any memories associated? With
3: oh, I don't really know. I mean, I think the. I mean, I think being my sort of generation, when it comes to films like this, it's often very hard to pin down when you first saw it because they were on television all the time, and that's and if you come from a generation where there were no alternatives, uh, I mean, so many of films from that generation you sat on and you watched because they were on, <laughs> and there was only two channels, maybe there only been one at one stage in my my life uh, in this country. Um, so I don't actually remember when I, when I first. Saw it uh, uh, all the way through for the first time. It would have been on television when I was pretty young, certainly, and that would have been, I think, my first sight of Brando, I would have thought. Wow. Um, I mean, I can't imagine what else I would would have seen. I don't think I saw a Streetcar Named Desire before, and I wouldn't have been able to see yeah. The Godfather before then. The
0: Wild One, possibly, would be... I
3: don't, not something that was repeated very often, I don't think. No, The Wild One was... on The Bounty. I reckon, because I'm... Possibly, yeah. That mm-hmm. was
2: repeated constantly on the TV when I was young as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, so, it, but, I mean, I, I, I can't, I don't think as a child or as a teenager or whatever it really stuck with me. It's, um it's sort of semi-holy status that sort of set in over <laughs> the decades in the uh, proceeding. I don't think I really kind of got a chance to, to process that until probably when I was in my late teens or twenties, when I would have sat down and watched it seriously and thought about it. Um so probably not until then would I would I have seriously thought about it.
0: All right. So just this is a movie that is probably going to require a lot of context. I apologize to Andrew in advance for this. This is the bit where Andrew kind of just nods off for 20 minutes and comes back. Um but just
1: to just a little bit about Joseph Stalin. Yes, yeah, so we'll begin with Joseph <laughs> Stalin and we'll take it from there.
0: Um but no, Elliot Kazan uh very famously he's... actually
1: He actually he was already dead when this was released, wasn't it? He it was uh Oh, Oh, Joseph Stalin. Not not, not, Elia Kazan. 5th of March, 1953. Yeah, just about Yeah. So
0: yes, yes, yes. Okay, so Elia Kazan is a Turkish-Greek child, emigrates to New York at a young age. Uh, He comes up, he wants to be an actor. Very famously, when he tells his father, who was a rug salesman who dreamed that he would follow in the rich family heritage of rug selling, (laughs) that he wanted to be an actor, his father's response was, look in the mirror. Um, He joins the group theatre in New York... He acts on stage. Um, he stars in a very early production of Clifford uh, Odette's Waiting for Lefty, where he's the vo- he's the person who runs on stage at the end, points and names the informer in the play, in a theme that will probably be important later in this episode, and shouts, strike, strike, strike. Mm. However, it becomes very clear to him that he is not going to develop as an actor, so he shifts and becomes a director. Uh, he arguably becomes one of the great directors of actors in American cinema. Obviously, the group theatre, which he co-founds with Lee Strasberg, I believe, is one of the homes of Stanislavski's method. He works and he finds this entire generation of young actors. Um, Brando is the very obvious example, you know, Streetcar Named Desire, and then carries over into the feature adaptation of a Streetcar Named Desire and obviously works with him here again as well. Work with him on Via Zapruda, for example, as well. Um, like, he finds Warren Beatty is in there as well. E. Marie Saint is in this movie. He's this hugely influential director in terms of him taking a generation of actors. He's also a hugely influential director in terms of bringing the New York theater to Hollywood, bringing a style of filmmaking, a style of storytelling that is more engage with what is happening on the kind of east coast of America. Um, obviously, he has, you know, a number of key friends. He has a long-term relationship with Tennessee Williams that's kind of struck up. Uh, and obviously, there's there's Miller as well, who is a long-term kind of partner um, of him. Um, and obviously, I believe they both may have had a relationship with Marlon Monroe at around the same time as well. Uh, now, this is where things get controversial. This is where things get heady, and it's worth just acknowledging them up front. He joins the Communist Party uh, in the 1930s very briefly. He is a member by his own account for one year and a quarter. He leaves the Communist Party and this is going to be a recurring theme if we talk about Kazan in any depth in this episode, after a conflict with the group in which they near unanimously vote to exile him for refusing to tow the party line. In a vote held above a bakery shop, he says he can still smell the sugar and molasses. They vote 22 to 2 to expel him from the group or to force his resignation from the group. Uh, This is a wound that he carries with him. He says that he continued to support Soviet communism for several years after the fact, even though he turned his back on American communism. But then, obviously, once uh, Stalin made a deal with Hitler, he broke completely uh, from communism as an ideology. Now, in 1952, he is called to testify before HUAC. He is called twice, once in January and then once later in the year. The January hearing is held behind closed doors. Uh, he does not name names. In fact, according to Miller, he says beforehand he is not going to name names. He's very steadfast that he will not give names to Huak. How and ever? Several things happened between then and his second public testimony. And there are a number of arguments advanced by both him his biographers, his family members and his colleagues about why that is, why he decides to name names. But essentially it boils down to, one, the grudge that he feels towards the American Communist Party. Two... The fact that A Streetcar Named Desire, despite being nominated for, I believe, eight Oscars, did not win Best Picture and Best Director, (laughs) uh, which apparently led him to believe that Hollywood would never accept him, even if he did refuse to name names. The possibility that, as an immigrant, he was particularly susceptible to HUAC, that he could easily have been sentenced, he could have spent time in prison. He was an outsider, he did not have the protections that a normalized American citizen would have had. Uh, And then, finally, talking to his psychoanalyst. Apparently, his psychoanalyst asked him one day, "Do you think anybody would do that for you? Do you think anybody would go in there and risk their future, refusing to name your name?" Well, so w-
1: you you haven't touched on one of the other reasons is that he, I mean, it, from from his own account, he felt that the uh, American Communist Party was far too uh, rosy-eyed when it came to Stalinist Russia. Oh yeah, that's why he broke from them. Yeah. No, but but the, the, the I I I think he's I feel like he still felt that in the 50s. Like they did to put it as if it's just a grudge and not like an ideological uh a uh, disagreement. Like if 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 he'd been like, yeah, I broke from them then, but they're a very different party now. I think he still felt at the time that that there were uh
0: this is where it gets complicated. Right. Um where there is an argument in Hollywood, and there are basically three camps of thought on Kazan. The first camp is the hard line that says he was the most famous person to that point to be dragged in front of the public hearings. If he had defied McCarthy or if he had said nothing, um, he would have potentially been like a nice standard bearer. He would have, you know, he would have basically publicly humiliated the hearings and ended the blacklist, which well, is, to my it's mind...
1: Prisoner's Dilemma. Then.
0: Yeah, okay. The second... The second school of thought is that, look, we accept that he had to go and he had to name names. In fact, he's argued that of the eight names he gave, seven of them were known beforehand. In fact, he actively, he talked to Miller beforehand. He talked to Odette beforehand. He let people know that he was going to be naming names before he named them. Now, he still did give them one name that they didn't already have. But his argument was, I only gave them names they already knew. Um, there are people who would say that would be fine. That would be except we understand why he would have done that. He was in a more vulnerable position than most of us. The problem, however, is that he takes a full page paid advertisement in the New York Times, which basically amounts to I'm proud of what I did. I stand by it entirely. And I urge everybody else called before who act to name names. It's no sense of contrition. It's a sense of absolute. I was right. The rest of you are wrong. Why are people challenging me? And over the ensuing decades, he largely refused, no, he didn't largely refuse, he completely refused to apologize or to retract or to say that he made the wrong choice or that he made a mistake. And very publicly and very brazenly kind of pushed that forward. I think like that that's the thing about the the kind of Kazan. That's why he is such a special case when it comes to the blacklist. It comes to people who are called to testify. Like Lee J. Cobb, who is in this movie, yeah. um, named names as well, but didn't face any of the same sort of shame or any of the same sort of uh, branding that that uh, Kazan did, it's the the statement and the brazenness of the "I was right, I don't regret this, I will never admit that I regret this, I was right and the rest of you were wrong." Mm. Um, yeah, kind of. That's why why that kind of hangs. Within,
1: over. within that, there's no camp who agree. Like I per, per, personally, like you, you know that I've, uh, you know. Had uh, expressed strong opinions against Huwac, and especially like, yeah. uh, um, I think we had discussed Oppenheimer long before there was a movie yeah. um, uh, uh, about him. I think it was on the uh, Shutter Island episode. Yeah. But yeah, the 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 that there is a kind of a a. a there aren't that there aren't just people who are like we disagree what what he's done, but we understand it, or there aren't just people who are like we disagree what in what he's done and he's been brazen in it and and he ought to um, apologize. That surely there are some people who um, felt that he did the right thing.
0: Well, I mean... He I'm, got, not, I'm he got, not saying he got, I'm one No, no, I know. He he got to continue working. That's the thing. Like, unlike the people who ended up on the blacklist, he did get to continue working. He got to work within the studio system. In fact, Daryl Zanuck immediately had him make a movie Man on the Tightrope, which was about, I believe, a trapeze artist trapped behind enemy communist lines, which was very much like welcome to the winning team. Yeah. You get to make a movie about how evil communism is. Yeah. Um, he did get to... Well, continue- yeah, I say studio. Studio is not like that. He did
1: exactly the right thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah,
0: like it was it was Zanek who encouraged him to testify. And again, like one of the arguments against what against him is that like because he came from theater in New York, the argument was that like maybe even if he got slapped on the wrist and sent to prison for a couple of weeks, he could still move back to New York and he could still have a career there. He would be venerated there, he would be worshipped there, mm. he would still be able to have a career, but he chose Again, this is one of the things where there's gossip and whisper and nobody really knows one way or the other. Kazan himself has insisted that he actually took a pay downgrade. That he actually took uh, that his salary at the studios was cut after he testified. However, there was also testimony from people involved that actually the very next day he signed a fairly substantial contract at the studio in return for naming
2: names. Well, he he got paid. I have it right here because he boasts about it. Back to my little yeah, my little article that he wrote. I don't have it. Where is it? I've marked. Anyway, he got up the the on the waterfront cost eight hundred thousand dollars. Marlon Brando got a hundred thousand. Eli Kazan got a hundred thousand as well, plus twenty five percent. So he was getting paid okay. he's getting the paid same amount as the star. I think it's interesting to compare him to someone like John Garfield, who died of a heart attack in the midst of over, you know all the controversy about the Huac and and his involvement mm. in in various um, organizations and. I think it was Sterling Hayden who named names and then immediately regretted it and went out and apologised and picketed and then just stopped. So you have Kazan at one stage going off making on, on the waterfront, getting the same amount as his star plus profits. And then you have those two gentlemen, plus, of course, all the writers, et etc. et cetera. Um, And other directors who had to leave, um, Jules designer and all the rest of them had to leave the country. So. He, these, are, these are the reasons why I say, no, <laughs> he's, I'm not, he's not I'm not putting this film out in my classroom. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'd prefer to read Sterling Hayden's really boring biography, autobiography, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think I got beyond page 60. Dear God, but anyway, uh, I do not recommend it, unless you're really into sailing. But, uh, yeah, it does. So you compare him to those two, and then you have even Miller, who stands up for Lillian Hellman has a great book. And in it, she talks about herself in a her relationship with Dashiell Hammett and how Hammett was affected by the HUAC hearings, and then how she stood up and what happened afterwards. So there's so much that's going on, and and you can look at Kazan on his own and and say should he or shouldn't he? Would it have affected? Him? But when you compare him to those people, he could have he could have gone back to Broadway. He could have stood up mm-hmm. and done what I think is the decent thing. Uh, but I, of course, it's easy for me to say that in 2023, and I've got a a nice, nice job, you know what I mean? So it's easy for me to say, but he still could have gone back to Broadway and be quite successful. Um, so, yeah, and, and at some stage after the morals, I mean, Bogart is another classic example, um, but he kind of redeemed himself, I think, people it of re- redeemed when you're when, when suffering from cancer and the way he held himself during those times. But he was part of the the people, Donald probably remember, what's the, 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 the group?
3: Hollywood Seven, Hollywood Seven, Hollywood Eight, Hollywood. How many women Hollywood were ten, ten. And then he was ten. part of the group yeah. that
2: that supported them initially. And then he was getting a yep. bit of a kickback and he put out an ad saying, well, actually, do you know what? Never mind, my that <laughs> Oops. Yes,
3: there was, there was that severe backing, backing <laughs> yeah. away after the, after they all went to Washington that time and then there was a severe backing away afterwards. That Because um, well, they felt, I think, a lot of them felt at that stage they could wait it out, which in fact indeed proved to be correct, ultimately. I mean, those, those who, who um, decided to lower their heads from the parapet after initially putting them over essentially were right. I mean, you know, they sat around... <clears throat> And, you know, eventually, you know, thanks to people like Kirk Douglas and others who eventually kind of forced significant people who'd been blacklisted, like obviously Dalton Trumbo, um, uh, uh, back into the limelight, albeit initially under cover of um, pseudonyms. Pseudonyms. Yeah, I mean, that that, I mean, waiting it out was one way, one way around it. Another way around it that that Kazan could. I mean, I think I don't feel that it's one thing you would say about the attitude towards Kazan afterwards. And obviously this. You know, came to a real head in 1999 with that honorary Oscar that we mentioned briefly earlier on. There weren't really many defenders outside, yes. uh, outside um, the you know the the hard right that um, it, within Hollywood. And Orson Welles famously, was some interview he gave somewhere where he basically kind of quite blankly <laughs> called him a traitor. Called him a traitor exactly, quite blankly called him a traitor, um, which was interesting. So I, I mean, it's not as if he was part of a cabal. At, um, who were somehow, as as one decided, um, this was an acceptable way of dealing with the blacklist was to collaborate with it and uh, and pat themselves in the back ever since. And I think, I mean, I, I think in relation to on the waterfront, I think one of the, the one of the the film in some sense does him no credit whatsoever because, I mean. In in insofar as it is a metaphor or analogy or representation um, of his experiences, it's a complete poor me representation, isn't it? I mean, the whole thing. I mean, there's no. I mean, there is in here a. I mean, if you're trying to use. The plot of the film, which is, as we'll talk about shortly, a plot about organized crime and corrupt unions um, and uh, and standing up against those as a metaphor for the situation that the Communist Party was in, you're going to have trouble really kind of making those tendrils connect. Um, so re- really, I mean, as far as emotionally, the only where it, where, it, where it makes any sense on his own terms, I stress, is this going to poor me sense? Oh, leave me alone, leave me mm. alone, look, at it. everyone's against me. <laughs> and here was how I bravely stood up and, uh, and pulled myself together and became the man that I am today It entered the workplace and the doors clanged behind me and here I am. Which I, and I don't think the poor me analogy, one, one of any friends over the succeeding half century. No, was, yeah, I,
1: I, I feel like he had, he does have his some defenders, uh, uh, Scott Bayo Kevin
3: no right. Well, that's what I mean. Dean Kane. <laughs> Dean, Dean Dean yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're basically having. You got there first. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, certainly, for example, Martin Scorsese, who was, um, uh, <laughs> uh, who was one of the people who was pushed hardest, and I think was on stage, was he not, um, for Honorary Oscar? Yes, certainly, he meal. makes no effort to defend what he actually did, and in fact, Scorsese rather unconvincingly suggested, that he was more regretful about it than the evidence seems to suggest, <laughs> um, but. So I, so I think that that, put, that, that puts me in an odd position. I mean, he just seems to be a remarkably stubborn man who was quite prepared mm. to say, "This is me. I'm doing this, and I'm going to remain largely unrepentant for the next fifty or sixty years." And fuck you. Yeah,
1: Like, like having
0: done, like, I'm not going to pretend to know the inner workings of Elliot Kazan's mind, but having done research for this podcast, having read his memoir, A Life, which is a fascinating read, having, like, read his kind of history, like... He's always argued that he's not he's not political. He was never political. His films which he's a it, communist. Tackles, <laughs> <laughs> But
1: his his
0: his films obviously like tackle big social yeah. issues. He's very proud of the fact like Gentleman's Agreement dealt with like anti-Semitism. Sure. Pinky dealt with racism, all this sort of stuff. Um but he's always said for me it was deeply, deeply personal. And I read his his own musings in his own words and go i can absolutely see that where like when he's asked to explain why he joined the communist party he goes well when i went to college i was surrounded by all these rich wasps and that really turned me off american (laughs) capitalism i was like i'll show them i'll join the communist party um, there is this kind of like really incredible motivating sense of spice to yeah. a lot of his filmmaking, yeah. um, to a lot of his career. Again, and it's something we come back to on this podcast quite frequently, is that the 400 Blows, which is one of those, you're banned from Cannes. Okay, I'll have my own film festival. Um kind of like movies where spite is an incredible motivator for a filmmaker.
1: Do you, have you ever done that thing Connor where you say, well, if you if, if maybe you should teach the class. <laughs> and then they do a fantastic No, cuz a job do jobs, <laughs> than me. I know better than that. I'm no fool. <laughs> Just
0: and, and again, like we mentioned the fact that nobody seemed to stand up for him. And, and Andrew kind of raised the question, of, was there nobody who was like full throat defense aside from, as Donald mentioned, the extreme right? Be,
1: like there is. Because there was, this, the, the, like you you mentioned the, the cooperation of, of Hitler and Stalin, that that that, that after kind of the, um, the kind of fellow travelers had their sort of heyday and that there was this kind of like 15 years or so, like slow dawning of, oh, okay. So we right. made a mistake yeah that 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 that's um there, there there was a distance backed
0: the wrong horse there yeah yeah exactly that, <laughs> that, y- yes
1: we're still anti-fascist but in no <laughs> not in we, that way yeah 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 we'll we'll <laughs> not send, like that no yeah. not like we'll that send, yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll send some money to certain causes but we're we're not going to two you know,
0: communist party channels andrew two <laughs> communist party <laughs> yeah. channels
1: um
0: but at, at, at the point that's been made, and like it, Donald mentioned the 1999 Oscar, it continues to this day. Zoe Kazan, his granddaughter, is constantly feeling questions about him. Mm. Every time she's promoting a new project, she's asked about, hey, so your granddad, yeah. how would you feel about that whole mm. thing? Um, but the, like, I think Mark Stein kind of made the point that, like... <laughs> I, I know, I'm sorry. Um, made, the, made the point that, like, perhaps this obsession with Kazan is a reflection of Hollywood's own guilt because the blacklist was not government-enforced. It was studio enforced.
3: Yes, yeah, well, Mark Stein is not wrong, to be fair to Mark Stein, the yeah. famous Canadian right wing <laughs> columnist. It's <laughs> actually, in fact, not, not entirely wrong in that regard. It's all, it, yeah, I mean, if you find an enemy to, to work out your own guilt uh, in terms of not having actually stood up as as bravely as you could have stood up, then that's quite useful. Though, I mean, yeah, and it's, you know, obviously, there is always a certain amount of, I use a terrible phrase, a, Common in the last ten or fifteen years, virtue signaling. Uh, whenever you turn against somebody um, famous who you don't know and never met, and um, uh, it, um, for uh, in a, a long day. But I, you're you know, right;
0: we are milkshake ducking, Elliot Kazan. I, you know,
3: <laughs> nonetheless, I think that that it was. I mean, a remarkable betrayal. I think. I, I think. It, it, I think it's understandable why it has reverberated down through the decades. Um, uh, no question about that. And and the most most prominent and powerful person who. Betrayed and yeah. named on that level. I mean obviously yeah. as Connor was saying, Sterling Hayden and other people had their uh, you know, dabbled in this area. But um so I think it's understandable why it has reverberated. And also and you know, that is redoubled by the way in which as we're about to discuss, he attempted some kind of slightly feeble <laughs> um uh, um explanation or justification on the end of this film.
0: Yeah. Um and again just to to mention this because it is it is worth mentioning, on the waterfront. Its relationship to this scandal in Kazan's life is is interesting because the writer who is uh Bud Schul uh, mm-hmm. Bud Schulberg also named names and also testified, yep. and he has insisted that this movie has nothing to do with that. It was not intended as such. In fact, apparently um, Kazan had been wanting to make a movie about the New York Docklands since, I believe, the late 40s, early 50s. Originally, Miller, yeah. um, Arthur Miller had been working on a script Hook. called The Hook. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly it. Uh, the studios in Hollywood had suggested that he needed to make the unions evil communists, and that was when Miller said toodles, I'm out. Yeah. Um, I also love, by the way, that uh, Miller wrote, uh, is it A View from the Bridge? Yeah. That was his response to the whole HUAC thing? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Miller sends a copy of A View from the Bridge to Kazan, and Kazan writes back and says this is a beautiful script, I will be honoured to direct this for you. And Miller replies no, you misunderstood, I didn't send this to you because I wanted you to direct it. I sent it to you because I wanted you to know what I think of Stool Pitching. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do love good old passive aggression. But obviously, the script for this, the screenplay for this, was apparently written before either of the two men testified at HUAC. The first draft of the screenplay, it was based on a series of articles called Crime on the Waterfront, written by Malcolm Johnson in the New York Sun, which exposed organized crime in the New York City Docklands. It was... In direct response to a murder that had happened in 1948 of Thomas Colatine, who was killed by three gunshots. Um, but the caveat to all of that is that, as much as all this circumstantial evidence exists, and as much as somebody like Scorsese might say, Oh, I, I had no idea that was the context for the movie itself, Kazan himself has said, No just to be clear i absolutely 110 percent intended as a gigantic fuck you to everybody but it's also, um, i was right
3: but it's also he knew the situation when he began to shoot the film so even yeah. if all that's true even if the entire script you know the finished version of the script was as it was before he began shooting it you cannot sit back well he's not trying to as you pointed <laughs> out darren <laughs> but it's <He's laughs> leaning <laughs> into exactly it exactly but you he could not should he want to sit back and say i have nothing to do with it i mean the very fact that you knew what happened and you were making this film meant it had something to do with it, even if it had been conceived and written entirely before the camera started rolling. I mean, I'm interested just to, I mean, in the origins of this, it's kind of interesting the way in which the, the the Miller script has got sort of, depending on who you read, has got differently entangled up with the origins of On the Waterfront, which was called The Hook. I think this was set in. I think actually it was set in Red Hook, that um, yeah. that uh, part of Brooklyn that sticks out um, just below Manhattan, and ra- rather than the, the, rather than the connections to the Hooks, when the, the Hooks play quite a part in, part in the film. But it, um, it seems there are some disputes whether or not that was an early version of On the Waterfront, or was an entirely different script. It seems to me it was an entirely different script, and yeah. that they moved then onwards
2: to a different story uh, set in roughly the same area. Every time you guys are mentioning Hook. All I'm thinking of, and when I read it, yeah, yes. Steven Spielberg about is Peter Pan in, in Arthur Miller's original script? <laughs> <laughs> Peter Pan on the waterfront as <laughs> he naming names.
0: That, that's why Steven Spielberg didn't stand up because he didn't want to make his good friend Arthur Miller feel uncomfortable. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I, so but, I do want to make a few changes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just, I have some
0: notes. There will still be a boat. Just to be clear, <laughs> yeah. there will be water. It'll take place near water. Um, I mean, like Spielberg immersed himself in the world. He went down and he talked to all the key figures. I mean, the priest in here is based on a specific priest around the New York Docklands, stuff like that as well. But just fun to untangle. But before we jump into a discussion of the film in death, Connor, do you think On the Waterfront belongs on the Irish Leaving Cert curriculum?
2: No, and for a completely different reason. Um, oh, OK. Yeah. The, 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 the politics, that's me. That's a me thing. That's a that's a Connor thing. Another the teacher next door can teach it away, whatever. That's fine. But... As we've said before, there are different kind of, there are a number of films and each one films a particular kind of, um, I don't know, a theme niche. or a gap, niche, yeah. thank you. Better, yeah. And this one is the kind of the classic Hollywood yeah. niche. So it's kind the of...
0: Casablanca is on there quite frequently. Yeah,
2: and I wouldn't there. have that on it either, to be honest with you. So what, that's all films basically before 19, could be before 1980, but definitely before 1970. So any film before 1970 has a little s- s- slot on the Leaving Cert. And I just don't think On the Waterfront is good enough. I think you've got all these Ooh. other much better films that we should be looking at and On the Waterfront shouldn't even get a look in. and neither should Casablanca either, even though I've taught Casablanca and kids love Casablanca, but I think there are just better films. If this is the only place in all a second level education where they're going to look at a classic A movie, black and white American film. It doesn't have to be American. It could be anything. If you open it up, well, I mean, it yeah. can be foreign language as well, you see, which they haven't done. It can be uh, a black, it could be a silent movie. But that's
0: movie. its own separate niche, Connor.
2: I, but it, amalgamate. Break the barriers. <laughs> break the barriers, put them all together. That's my reason why. I, don't, I just don't think, I just, I, I, I personally, I actually don't like the film. i have watching it a couple of times. I tried watching it again yesterday and I just turned it off halfway through. I think that bloody priest speech. But anyway, wow. I, I just don't like, I just don't think. I don't think it's good enough. And I know that I'm in a minority here. Glad year.
0: we saved this one for last. Hmm? Um, I'm glad that we saved this episode <laughs> for last. Um, Donald, what about yourself? So ignoring the question of whether or not films should be on the Leaving Cert, except mm. that it is, if you're putting together a curriculum for Leaving Cert students to study, should they have the option of choosing to do on the waterfront?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think um, uh, historically it, it, it stands in for a lot of changes that were happening in whatever about like the politics of it. They were happening in the art of Hollywood at that point in its history, uh, most particularly obviously as regards acting I mean you could obviously select a whole number of films um uh, starring you know Montgomery Clift and co- other colleagues um, of uh, of Brando at that time but I think for that reason this I mean the thing is you know obviously no film can perfectly encapsulate. I mean if we're talking, if we're selecting this as uh, a film from what most people would say is still just about in the golden era of Hollywood. So, I mean, I, I mean that's one of those great flexible conversations, isn't it? Where some people would like you know halt at nineteen thirty nine, and some people would extend to nineteen seventy one. But if you're talking about something in, in that bracket, I mean, no film is going to perfectly encapsulate that. You know, it would have to be. A, it would have to be a drama. It would have to be at the uh, same time as being a comedy, same time as being a musical, at the same time as being a Western, all these things. So that's never going to happen. And the notion of, of selecting a film that represents all those things um, is, is a fool's, uh, a fool's quest. Um, but I think I do think that in terms of the way in which it sits on a fulcrum of Hollywood, I think, yes, I think it's a pro- perfectly decent choice. For all its flaws, and there are, are great flaws, and I think actually Connor's is quite right, the, the pretty speech by much of we love love old Carl malden is kind of insufferable uh, in the middle of this um and, uh, and i think basically and also not least because it has that kind of it has that quality of like you know a pompous trendy priest uh, um, <laughs> sermon where you try and kind of like, you, know, you know the bible is still it matters to us now and that that's trying of to tone to, and also the ending is hopeless i have to say at um uh, uh, the ending is enormously sentimental And whatever about kind of the politics of what Kazan is trying to say about his own situation, absurdly sentimental and sunny, you know, that point at which Molden and Eve marie Saint turn to one another and kind of smile (laughs) like everything's going to be absolutely fine now, we're going to walk, those things noted, um, I think, I think yes, I think for Brando's performance, of which I have some reservations, which I'll undoubtedly get to, but nonetheless, in terms of what it represents in the history of Hollywood, then I think you know, that is there, and also even Ray really Saint, I think the presentation, a lot of which would actually feed into how television worked as well as as cinema at, at that stage, and also demonstrate to a certain extent the influence of television yeah. already uh, on cinema. I think for all those reasons, I think it is a perfectly decent selection to fit fill that hole as i say no film is going to f- fill that hole perfectly so you're always going to be hammering a triangle into a circle or a square into a um into into a rectangle i feel like we, we've square is a rectangle you know we, what i mean
1: we've
0: we've covered <laughs> enough of the kazan Huek stuff but i just want to emphasize if you are reading this film as kazan's fuck you i was right message the christ imagery Mm. that just permeates this film (laughs) is (laughs) like like the fact that that sermon about it's a crucifixion everything's a crucifixion So the the moment where like the the protagonist who is the author stand in literally walks the stations
1: of the cross like just that's right i kind of admire it i'm not gonna lie part of me just standing up for what he believes is right against the authorities of the day like jesus christ <laughs> like cockland are yeah. like robocop
2: <laughs> obligatory
1: robocop obligatory
0: robocop yeah. <laughs> um, but i like that now elia kazan himself is a robocop <laughs> in this podcast but like I, I cut like that is the bit that i'm kind of like it crosses a line for me where it's like this man destroyed lives he destroyed livelihoods what he did was horrible and terrible but I also kind of admire the chutzpah of
3: you know. Yes. To use a relevant word. Yeah. You know
0: who I remind me of?
3: Jesus. That's Jesus. who i remind me of. Um,
0: but yes, okay. So, and Andrew, what about yourself?
1: Yeah, I agree. the 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 stuff about uh, Karl Malden's character, the Father Barry. He's he's kind of like the kind of priest who's like, you know, I wasn't always a priest. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, let me tell you about another dude who <laughs> yeah. could get alcohol served in a remote location. Jesus, but, um, I I think there's a lot to chew on in this movie, and that I feel like makes it a suitable movie for the leaving certificate. I think in terms of its look, in terms of the sound, um, yeah. not just the music. Um, of this movie and i guess in terms of the themes because i i i feel like <laughs> you know it's not a religion class but i think you could get a <laughs> lot of discussion going um and and that that uh that that students could engage with it um on 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 the team on the themes and the whole idea of uh kind of not uh being a tattletale i feel like speaks to to the
3: um
0: (laughs) to the general mindset of a school that's the message you should be sending to kids it's perfectly okay to rat on your friends
3: yeah yeah (laughs) well that is i mean i think that is one of the most extraordinary things about this film in terms of if it works at all it is a miracle because it is one of the you know nobody likes a snitch i mean it's an extraordinary thing i mean it, it, it and in cinema that even tow- yeah whatever tow- <laughs> even in those films where the snitch is essentially obviously standing up for virtues standing up against oppression like the insider like, yeah example, they always basically yeah. end up depressed dead miserable <laughs> and alone <laughs> so they said even even when they're doing the right thing and that's a very good example of the insider actually that um they, they basically always end up because their lives bloody ruined by it um but for the most part and even though i mean you know that well they end up essentially more more often than not like um radios at the end of goodfellas who has to live this live the rest of his life like a snick Snuck. like a snook Schnook famously, one of those great uh, um, um, insults that, that only, only seems to exist in Goodfellas. But, you know, Frank Serpico ends up kind of like, you know, lonely and shocked. You know, look at Frankie Pentangeli in The Godfather Part Two. Um, Who appears here, by the way. Like, he, he appears as the barman. Mm-hmm. He's, he's very... He does, that's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, I mean, nobody likes the grass, even in a situation where we all know it's the right thing to do. We're almost a little bit uncomfortable and find it hard to make that person into the hero. So the, the sense of where it works at all, it's a remarkable, remarkable achievement for that reason and nothing else. He, he, he
2: Nobody, there's two things. One, he kind of seems to do it because it's revenge in the end because of his brother's death. But the other thing, nobody seems to like and it, and because there's a hot lady, and there's like, a hot That's, well, like, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like
0: <laughs> the, not to not to make this too autobiographical, but that that article that Kazan published in the New York Times two days afterwards was written by his
2: wife, Molly. Isn't like, here. I'm what? not. Mm-hmm. The
0: subtext isn't isn't particularly buried
2: here. I think. But in in the film as well, nobody likes a uh, possessive apostrophe either. Which, on watching a number of times, really irritates me. Friendly's Bar, nope. Joey's Coop, nope. Where, I mean. <laughs> so you're
0: saying it shouldn't be in the English class? Well, it shouldn't be. I'm not
2: alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, am alone. It shouldn't be in the English class. Um.
0: And and for myself, I think yes. Like I think like last week, I talked about Mustang making me uncomfortable because I don't know that the cultural context of that is accessible to a lot of people to have the conversations that I think you need to have about that movie. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think with this movie, it is ubiquitous. It's impossible to talk about on the waterfront without getting into Huac, without talking about something in which, thanks to Hollywood's obsession with itself, yeah. we have a long history of being documented and understanding because Kazan has written a memoir that is an incredible read that is not an endorsement it's just a statement of fact it is an incredible read i wish i had Mm -hmm. that man's self-confidence um (laughs) but like it is it's something that's thorny and interesting and complicated and it's something that's kind of interesting to talk about if you are a kid watching a movie the grappling of the relationship between reality and fiction and how they intersect with one another i also just think it's really well made and like that's Mm. the thing where
1: yeah I didn't even well, this, mention the acting.
0: Yeah, the, the, <laughs> think, yeah, the such
1: like idiosyncratic <laughs> kind of performances. That, the,
0: the the performances, the soundtrack, the cinematography. It's like this is a movie that seems to exist on the cusp of modern Hollywood. It is very much like Donald made the argument about the end of the Golden Age. This is a movie that I think is at once classical in terms of being like a black and white film, in terms of being a film about a social issue that's very earnest about that social issue. But it's told in a way that is entirely relatable and feels modern even today. Again, thanks to the performances, thanks to the music, thanks to the cinematography. It's a movie that, like Citizen Kane, I think you could put in front of a bunch of 12-year-olds and have them watch and have them engage with in a way that they reflexively don't imagine they can with a black and white film mm. in the way that my younger sister has never watched a black and white film. I think that because <laughs> right. it, it exists perfectly in that ground, it's one foot in either of two worlds mm. where it is classical Hollywood, but it's also something more modern and more recognisable. I mean, like, what is it that Ethan Hawke says about Nicolas Cage? He's the only actor to do anything interesting with the form since Brando. Acting, right. acting has possibly not changed since Brando, arguably here obviously in a streetcar named desire as well
3: well i don't know about that i mean i i i, I do Ooh, okay i mean there's an argument that that brando brought in a, a, a school of naturalism that had not been there before now without even getting into his predecessor yeah, yeah. so that's because that's a different argument that i'm making um you know all naturalism is essentially faked and stylized. Um, yeah. uh, when you're dealing with drama. That, and this is just faked and stylized in a slightly different way. To I mean, it was all acting is faked and style is what I mean, but that includes um, uh, nat- alleged naturalism. I mean, he's doing something very different, for example, to what you would find in a film by Andrew Arnold con- in a contemporary
2: yeah.
3: uh, context, for example, or by the Darden brothers in-, in a contemporary context. I mean, very different. I mean, it is still... Essentially, quite mannered, theatrical.
0: Yeah. No, that, that's it, it and mannered. It is the, it, exactly.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm more so, more so. Obviously, in the streetcar named Desire, it's a play. <laughs> you know, that goes without I saying. But I mean, there is still. He has these great moments. I, mean, I I wonder. Fascinating about this film is which I when I watched it again last week is I'd forgotten about. There's in another era. The opening shot of this yes. film would be a gag. I mean, I don't think it is a gag in this context because it <laughs> have not got that postmodern and meta yet. But it starts with him yelling a name at a first-story window. Well, that's what you do. You <laughs> name you, you, you yell names at first-story windows. That's what you're <laughs> famous for. Uh, in this ca- in this case, not stuff. But <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but that, and you know, that I think you know those performances demonstrate how big he how big he was. And also there are throughout it there are affectations that look like affectations yes. and the example that I would give I think is one of the more famous uh, um, bits of acting in the yes. film which is not actually the the, the, the back of the t- the cap. glove is it it's that sequ- exactly mm. sequence uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't seen the film where he's walking with uh even Marie Saint I'll have to get to even Marie Saint in a minute, but it's a personal bit of like my generation, leaven Marie saint, but we 'll get to that in a minute, but he 's walking even Marie saint through the through the uh, playground and she drops her glove and he continues to see and he picks it up and they sit down and he sits on the swing and he tries the glove on his hand, which obviously is too small yeah, um if the glove don't quit you must have hit, must have quit uh try it on that doesn't work, takes it off and can you, and apparently that was entirely improvised, apparently mm. during that shot. Um, uh, she dropped her glove. He picked it up, and they continued with the scene. I don't know if they re-shot really it that way, or if that's the first time it happened. Is that do we know that? Depending
0: on who you ask, it's it, There have been different versions of this story. Kazan tells the right. story where he says, "Like the best thing I ever did in my career was not yell cut when that happened." But according to right, Brando, okay. they sta- they found it during rehearsal and then put it in the movie. You know?
3: That sounds to me more likely, frankly. But anyway, whatever way it, it was, it was it, it emerged through improvisation one way or the other. But that's a technique. Yeah. You know, and, he, and, and he has this technique to write at this stage of of deflection through small objects and yes. concerning himself with something else that's not... But There's a scene also in The Pigeon Coop where you find him playing with the um, rings, the loose rings from the pigeons yeah. that are hanging on the barbed wire as a way of kind of deflecting away from what he's actually saying and demonstrating that he's expressing his tensions and expressing um uh the things that he can't get out because he's an an inarticulate character through these bits of emotional leakage all that's technique i mean people don't really do that (laughs) i mean these things happen in films and plays as 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 a way of demonstrating as a way of communicating beyond language and i think those things are always they are as false as anything that you know Gilgood would do to name someone that contemporary was from a very different school that would have done, you know, when declaiming from the from you know the the, the stage of the royal court or whatever nonetheless I'm being unkind here and kind of like putting this all in a framework nonetheless you still end up with a kind of acting that you saw very little of but that way before this point in and, Hollywood history and
0: I mean well, to, to the point there you mentioned the him doing stuff with his hands that was apparently a Kazan thing with his actors like Kazan particularly because right. Kazan worked with actors who maybe weren't screen trained for example a lot of them came from sure. stage here there's a lot of people who had worked on the docks like the Kazan trick yeah. and you'll notice it if you rewatch the movie knowing it the Kazan trick is to take an Extra and give them something, whether it's a scratch card right. or a bottle. Yeah, There's yeah, a moment yeah, yeah. here where a guy opens a sandwich in the background of a scene, and it's like Kazan did yeah. that just because he wanted somebody doing something rather than just standing there
2: idly. He's one of the um, one of the few black uh, actors yes. or characters that have eaten Yes, he is. Yeah, that's right. This yeah, whole okay. acting thing, looking at it, this whole thing. <laughs> it's all <laughs> acting. It's bad. <laughs> it's all pretending to be something. Um, it's, it's lying, is yeah, what it is. Th- th- I was looking at it and I was going, This is like um I'm making choices here, you know, and slept in the taxi cab. <laughs> I'm making choices here. And <laughs> in what in what what I was fine with the glove, I was fine with the other things. But he takes the magic he has the magic coat at the end and he starts taking he starts playing with a thread as he's walking out of uh, one of the scenes. And I'm thinking, Oh Jesus, leave the bloody thread alone. Just walk <laughs> off, just stop, mm-hmm. just leave it. You've made a choice it's already just and that that moment just took me out. I was going, Ah oh, just <laughs> to stop it and, and I found that slightly irritating and I found what his okay so it's natural etc and I get all that but then you have other moments w- with other actors where they give the line and then the next person gives the line and then the next person and there's a slight pause which I presume is Kazan trying to make it seem natural but what it came because they weren't the, the main they weren't Cobb or they weren't uh, Steiger or, or anybody else they were just kind of um, down down the pecking order it came across as I am now saying my line mm. and I am now replying to your line <laughs> and I just found that bit again this is on like a second or third watch I found that bit just a little bit bit jarring well again it goes to that
3: notion about what you know that the, okay this is this is put forward as an example of naturalism in American cinema, but it's not naturalism as you'd find in John Cassavetes or most obviously Robert Altman would be the example that springs to mind. From what Connor is saying, you know, people are, people are still kind of delivering lines as they do in plays. They are waiting for the next person to to say his or her line and then responding I, to
1: it. I think that, like, I think a lot of older movies suffer from very bad sound mixing,
3: though, as well,
1: where it's very clear when one person is talking and then when well the other, mono, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, they, they. Well, I would, I
3: would say, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I had some difficulty with the sound in this film because um, I shot name names here, but I rented it. Rented it. I didn't have a copy here, which surprised me. So for this um, podcast, I rented it from a major online um, uh, streaming service, and the and the audio was so quiet. I could barely hear the Same. dialogue and had to let s- had to sit next to my television. <laughs> <But> that's <laughs> to- no, what they want to draw um, you in. It's
1: immersive. No captions s- either. Was, yeah. On mm-hmm. on that particular mm-hmm. large um, No, what? Sorry. <laughs> no captions either.
3: No, is that, yeah. no. Sorry, you're absolutely right. Yeah, exactly. So I went to look for the captions, and I thought I can't, and I can't hear this I, mean, I you know, not just Brando. I can't hear even when really you say. I can't hear Carl <laughs> Malden who, who delivers, it, delivers his Some delivers Some of that lines. crucifixion. Yeah. So I, I was literally sitting next to my television, like looking over, it, and I, as you say, I, I, there was no subtitles, and anyway, it's a whole side issue. Go on. Uh, sorry. You, you,
2: I had it on DVD old school. I watched it all the way through. Then I watched it with the old subtitles on, and then I watched it with the commentary which like that's when i turned off cuz they were really yeah. bugging me those guys. Oh, were you watching was it the Criterion collection? <laughs> no, no, with, no, 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 oh, oh no, okay, just okay. normal dvd. I don't know where it is, but I had two fellas and at one stage they said, "Is this the last great black and white film apart from yes. amazing what? reasonable? Yes. And i went, "Jesus, yes. Guys, what's what? going on like?"
0: Yes, that's the Criterion comedy that's that Richard th- Shickles th- on there. Oh, it's, Completely it's, ignoring it's, the fact that like the apartment and psycho exist to pick oh, two just, small examples from so many years. more. It's, it's
2: just yeah. madness. Thousands. Yeah. That's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Richard Richard Sickle yeah. said that, or, or I don't know which one said it. I don't know. I can't. I say don't
0: that. know which one of the two, but there, It was not a source of controversy. The point of controversy was Scorsese made Raging Bull. Right. That's maybe the exception.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't. I can name a single <laughs> other black and white film since 1954. That's the only one. <laughs> I think. They, they, sure. they, to
0: be fair, they may have specified American for our for our own cultured ears. But I, I do- mean, the leaving the leaving. There search. are still pl- there are still plenty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I know. I, this will.
2: Donald, no, no, this will cheer you up. Donald, the artist was on the leaving cert now. There's a black and white film, I'm sure. Yes, (laughs)
0: yeah, everybody remembers exactly. (laughs) Yes, yeah, that's
3: right. Um, what well, I mean. uh, I, I, feel, I, I don't mind the artist people, people are awfully awful oh, unkind you. about it I was sort of, yeah I think it's fine but anyway sorry we, we, we haven't time for that <laughs> what, what, I, what, what I was going to say we haven't talked
1: about Fast X yet yeah, which has <laughs> been no, a recurring no. motif on all these episodes
0: Fast X is the comparative text apparently but yeah. to, to the point that you made there like I don't know that I would describe this as a naturalistic film. Like, people tend to do that because it shoots on location. Very famously, sure. he couldn't get, he went He went around all the Hollywood studios, none of them would accept it. Daryl Zanuck was the one who was like, why would anybody pay to watch a, bunch, a movie about a bunch of ugly dock workers? I think was the comment that he got. Mm. So they did shoot on location in New York. They did use real um, kind of like dock workers in the background, stuff like that. Obviously heavily researched. But this is an extremely theatrical film.
3: It yeah, is, like, yeah, yeah. No, you're quite right. I mean, I think what I'm saying is that it's often represented oh, as yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and I, and yeah. I, and I think it, it's... And in some ways, there are aspects of, of what we... Of that vast, you know, bracket that, that includes naturalistic filmmaking. There are things in there that we will remember... That we reg- regard as documentaries to our filmmaking, not least the real actors in the background, and as you say, down the real locations and so forth, and so forth.
0: The location work, but I mean, like the the opening page of the script literally says, "This is not a documentary." Um, now, yeah. I don't know if the next line is, "It's a vindication," it's a vindication song, but the opening <laughs> line of the, the the script is, "This is not a documentary." Yeah,
2: that's what it says. It's a vindication. That's what it it's says. A, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> right, it's then. a crucifixion. And, <laughs> and then second question, um, Connor. Would you have watched this if it wasn't on the Leaving Cert curriculum? Yeah. Like, if you didn't have to do this for work, would you have Oh, yeah, yeah, of
2: course, yeah. yeah. I, like Donald, I probably saw it when I, was, when I was a kid on the TV randomly because you've nothing else to do when it's raining on a Saturday and Sunday. And um, so would have seen it. I did see it. So I'd seen it before it was on the Leaving Cert as part of my I better go and see this kind of movie watching. And uh, I watched it and I thought, yeah.
0: Did you know about the Kazan stuff before you watched it or after you watched That's it? That's
2: a good question. I don't know. I think... And did it colour your opinion? I don't know. I actually don't know. Okay. But I remember it not making a huge impact on me. I remember okay. that, though. All right.
0: All right. And, Donald, would you recommend it outside the Leaving Cert curriculum?
2: Oh, yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, and I th- not
3: just because, as I say, it, it, it um, marks... It stands at a fulcrum in American filmmaking, it, um, but also because I think it, it is an extraordinarily well-made film that has brilliant things in it even if it also has some terrible things linking those brilliant things together. What I was um, just in case we don't go, go around to saying this that um, uh, as regards the, 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 what I was, the point I was about to make about Even already Saint is an incredibly trivial point which I think probably relates to almost exclusively to people more or less precisely my age. I'm going to say born between 1962 and 1968 that sort of era is that all of us were exposed to rattlesnakes by Lloyd Cole and the commotions repeatedly over and over again. Does no one here know what I'm talking about, incidentally? No. No, no it didn't clear. come up
0: in the research, sorry. Nobody
3: here knows what I'm talking it's Fascinating. I, 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 I included this in, a, in, a, in a, one of my film quizzes once, the point I'm about to make. And uh, it was basically, there was like 10% it, Oh, that yeah, was easy. I mean, everyone knows that. <laughs> and 9% were, I'd, I'd got a lot of people might be saying this from, uh, um, from Ryan said, what are you talking about? He <laughs> <And, laughs> was a very educated man and knows no, what I'm talking about is the chorus of Rattlesnakes by Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, the title track of that album, uh, which I think this is about 1983, 1984, in which she sings, um, you look like yves Marie song in On The Waterfront and Ever Since. Like everybody else (laughs) of my generation, I cannot get Yves Marie Somme out of my head as the name of the actress who was in this film and in many more, uh, including um, North and West, obviously. Um, her name is even Marie really Saint, that's how she <laughs> pronounced it. And, but nonetheless, that has been stuck in my head ever since. And even now, whenever I mention her name, I still tend towards the Lloyd and the commotionist pronunciation.
0: 29 years old here, by the way, playing a character who is supposed to be near 20. Um, this is her <laughs>
3: first big film, yeah. Yeah, she's 90, she was 99 this yes. year. She was 99 only a few months ago. She's not supposed to be younger. In the film, um, she yes, supposed so she just
0: out of she school, okay. So I said 19, but yeah, okay, so like, okay. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. oh, did you say
3: 19? Sorry, I you said
2: 19. Yeah. She's, yeah,
3: but she, uh, she she 99 this year, and like you know, she now is she's sort of, sort of a unofficial kind of title of like you know, the last representative of old Hollywood, which Olivia de Havilland and Kirk Douglas held on to until they died in the same year at uh, at the same age, uh, uh, at 104, and even already said 99, I think probably now hangs on to that, um. Um, sometimes in some ways unhappy title
0: Um, I do remember the weirdness of her being included in Superman Returns as an in-joke related to this film Yeah, where it's like Superman's father is Marlon Brando so obviously his mother is Eve Marie Mm Saint, speaking of another director, uh, very troubled um, for different reasons, Andrew what about yourself, do you think like if this wasn't on the Leaving Circle, would you ever have watched this movie? I think so,
1: yeah no absolutely Um, and I would be glad that I had um, watched it, yeah yeah, no, I, I I would for all the reasons that we've uh, that we've that that we've been been true, yeah. And I think in spite of the kind of reservations, like I I I I, I sometimes find that would when 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 we have a consensus on something that I will be the the devil's advocate. But I think in when I when I was in school in history class, there was a girl gave me a CD. Which was a mixtape of different versions of Internationale. <laughs> so like I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> so I'm not unsympathetic to criticisms of Yeah. Um.
0: All right. And yes, I, I would, I would have watched this anyway. Um. All right. Then I think just very quickly, buzz round, uh, recommend Connor if listeners haven't watched it. Would you recommend they pause the podcast and stream it to local? Absolutely. Right? Oh, yeah, you have to watch Connor. It. Uh, sorry, uh, Donald.
3: Oh yes, I certainly would. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. And, Andrew? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I'd recommend that people watch it. Uh, Try and get a version with captions, maybe. (laughs) Although, I I watch (laughs) everything with captions.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's a sign we're getting old, Andrew. It's a sign (laughs) we're getting old. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Um.
0: I will say that Criterion, the streaming service, is great. It's unlike whatever retailer that you guys weren't naming and shaming. Not only does it have the film, not only does it have captions, it has three versions of the films in three different aspect ratios for reasons we may talk about in the spoiler zone. I may have watched all three of those. It has a separate version with the commentary. It has a separate version uh, with an introduction. It has several conversations with Martin Scorsese. And it has an hour-long documentary, Ilya Kazan, An Outsider, in which he talks to Michael Cement, and it is everything that you would expect it to be, based on our discussions of Mr Kazan in this podcast. With that in mind, we will enter the exam hall.
1: You may now watch the movie if you've not yet done so. The podcast is about to start. You have less than three hours to listen to this broad conversation, including tangents. The best of luck. So, Donald... What is on the waterfront
3: about for you? in terms of the plot?
0: Well, if if you had to sum up the film in whether plot, theme, narrative, cultural context, if I were to ask you, what is on the waterfront for you?
3: Well, I mean, I suppose that the story is actually quite a, a, a an ancient um, trope, as we now say, uh, in, in ancient narrative trope that is quite that remains consistent almost throughout the entire hour and 40 minutes, whatever it is, which is a man wrestling with his conscience and trying to work his way towards doing what the film regards as the right thing to do. In this case, that is Terry Malloy, who begins by assisting in the murder of um, somebody who's about to spill the beans on uh, corrupt unions in Hoboken uh, in the early 1950s, and it becomes clearer and clearer to him over the next... 10 20 minutes of the film um uh, his responsibility in this man's death and those and, and and representatives of virtue a little bit too explicitly so i would say <laughs> um gather around him and try and nudge him in the right direction but essentially i mean although it's it, you know it's i mean there are there are all kinds of things that you can put on this all kinds of arguments you can make for this for, for this being a, a important film and also an enjoyable film and also a film that that resonates. Um, for example, it has an that fascinating quality to it about being the greatest New York film ever made. That's not in set in New York. <laughs> in fact, never, never, no one ever sets foot in New York. In fact, nonetheless, yes. but it has, for example, there's a famous sequence with the sequence when. Uh, When Terry tells uh, Edie, Edie, the Marie Marie Saint's character, um, what he's done and his responsibility for her death, and they have this very, again, quite theatrical, it should be said, effect where the steam whistle cuts out what he's saying and the various clanking noises. Or the clanking noises build, which, which reminded me a little bit of The Godfather, actually, that famous sequence, of the assassination in the Italian restaurant, which has the uh, elevator railway. The train. Yeah, that builds up. But well,
0: this is a huge influence on The Godfather. I mean, even outside of the, the oh, casting of sure. Frank Vangeli, like the, fact yeah,
3: the various actors, yeah. yeah. The fact yeah. that um,
0: yeah. like that was a, Kazan was the model for uh, Herman Roth in Godfather Part Two. Like obviously he was played by Strasberg, oh, right. who was the other founder of the, the theater, and you give that that connection to Brando. But like the shirtlessness, the the shirtlessness was like apparently Coppola met with uh, met with Kazan uh, and asked him to take the role, and Kazan said no. But the one no Coppola came away from was, "Damn, that old man spends a lot of time with his shirt off." And it's like that's in the movie, <laughs> which,
3: is, which, uh, which accentuates his frailty. In the case of the actual film, it may not, may not have been what Kazan wanted. But I mean, that scene takes place it's one of the one of the great Empire State Building film uh, uh, Scenes, the Empire State Building is right behind them um, throughout, throughout that scene. And, I, and I, uh, I, when I lived in New York uh, 20, thirty years ago, more, um, I friends in a boken and it was you know. It, it, Even then, I mean, there were two things that you know. You went to a bar in Hoboken, an ordinary bar. There was invariably a photograph of There were invariably two things you find on the wall. Two photographs you find on the wall. One would have been a photograph of um, a scene from on the waterfront. The other would have been guess what? Photograph Frank Sinatra, obviously, because Frank Sinatra is famously Hoboken's um, favourite son, uh, who who almost ended up in the film. It is said. It is said that he was in discussions um, uh, to play the Brando part, which was inconceivable. Yep. And when that didn't happen, was then in, it, it was then uh, marked down for the Carol Malden role, which is almost as unlikely, frankly. But uh, I, 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 that is an aside. And, also, and but I think in many ways, what, what we talk about, what the film, when you ask what the film means, is it has that very central, as I say, narrative hub about being about a man wrestling with his conscience, which you can find in any number uh, of plays going back. Um, Millennia, um, but the technical thing which we pointed out as well, and I think we haven't we in this conversation so we haven't really touched upon the musical cinematography, which are I think are yeah. interesting things. And when I, I was watching, and I kind of I'd actually I've got to confess I had forgotten at um who shot this film, and I was watching it again the last the last week, and <laughs> there's that scene in the bar when they encounter the wedding, yeah. do you remember this? There's a, there's a wedding yes. going on elsewhere yeah. in the bar. And I suddenly thought, La Jean-Vigo's La it, uh, it has, has that look of that kind of that rustling activity and, and the wedding sequence. And of, course, of course, it's shot by uh, Boris Kaufman, who shot La what, 20, 30 years before um, he made this film and went on to shoot Many great film for Sydney Lumet in particular, and yes. um, The Pawnbroker is a film set in New York City. Um, it's a great New York film, and also the fascinating thing about you know the fascinating character in terms of the other talent involved in this, apart from Kaufman, obviously, is worth stressing. But is Leonard Bernstein? Yeah, is it? I mean, this is there are. <laughs> I'm saying you're that I said earlier on that I do a quiz in the Irish Times, and um, you know, if you put the points like, what is. What, yeah, uh, uh, into in jeopardy style, like what is the question? What is the trivia question to which this the answer. is an answer? There are several examples. One would be one good one is always what is the only original score that Leonard Bernstein? What which film is, has the only original score that Leonard Bernstein never composed? And oddly, it is this. And I don't, yeah. I've never really read any good explanation. Obviously, uh, he wrote Oscar Lombardo's songs, and you know, he he, uh, he wrote West Side Story, which became a famous film, and uh, and so forth. I really really, really, really Decent explanation as to why he never did another score. And it's because it's a remarkable score. It doesn't have any obvious big melodies, but it has that wonderful build, which I think he, in terms of influences, he compared to Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet. But it also has that kind of very intimate style to it, particularly with the French horn at various points, which suggests to me uh, um, Benjamin Britten that same sort of thing of a French horn talking, conveying individual loneliness and emotions and all those sorts of things. And it's it's a really extraordinary, interesting um uh, spooky score at times and one fascinated as to why he never went back to another one
1: it's interesting how like the 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 most kind of memorable well for me anyway uh, uh, music in the movie is is is, is the um is the piece that Jerry Goldsmith kind of took for well it did would, would like you could say that there there is certainly some sort of an homage going on there between, between his LA Confidential and the, um, and right, the, interesting, the yeah. tune playing at the <clears throat> end there. <clears> is, <throat> is, <clears throat> is. Yeah. I
0: mean, the thing with Bernstein is that <clears throat> apparently he was chosen by uh, Sam Spiegel, who was the producer. Right. Um, Spiegel, who was very famously a uh, lot of controversy with Schulberg and with Kazan, a lot of tension while making the movie. Apparently Spiegel only agreed to let them shoot on location because he was convinced it was cheaper. Um, he was the one who I believe was arguing for putting Sinatra in the lead role as well which right. may explain okay. a lot about the movie apparently he was the one who pushed for Bernstein to do this because he wanted another name that he could put on a poster apparently he didn't recognise any Bernstein movie and should, music put
1: <laughs> should put Bernstein's face on a poster as well <laughs> yeah. very good looking guy I was like shocked. played by Bradley
0: Cooper well, that- to be fair, sorry
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, that's about to happen yes, about to- <laughs> he's about to have one version of his face on posters any minute now but like the, I feel the, like Bradley Cooper
1: to Leonard Bernstein might be a glow up though. <laughs> <laughs> like the, 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 yeah, Bradley Cooper will have to kind of, you know, I don't know. <laughs>
0: Work out. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the thing with the the interesting thing about Bernstein's score here is that like he apparently did not do it the way that you conventionally do scores, which is that obviously you wait until the footage is assembled and then you score to particular scenes Bernstein apparently just took the script said, ah, I'm doing what I'm doing Mm. wrote the the music in like February of the year that this was being shot and then just kind of handed it over to Kazan and was like, do do with it what you will which kind of gives you this interesting kind of dissonance where it often feels like the music isn't building to what's happening on screen, it just kind of feels like Kazan had to pick the most suitable music music and kind of hope that it would work
1: um, I think like the example that's given is like I think that can be helpful though for somebody who's making something to have kind of music in mind
0: Yeah I mean there are examples of directors playing music in the background I mean again yeah. not because this are, is like the podcast it's Christopher well, Nolan's yeah. Interstellar began with Hans Zimmer's score for it for example mm. Seriously, Leon did um,
2: it all the time as well didn't he Yeah and then you have Ford who used to have a, a, a fiddler or a violinist on set as well playing some music trying to get them into the mood but, um, I, 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 I Sorry, Darren, you have more info. Go on.
0: No, no, no. I was, I was just going to make the point about like the, again, this is one of the breaking with the forms. The opening credits aren't set to an orchestral majestic score. They're set to a lone French mm, horn, yeah. which is like something yeah. that apparently was not what Spiegel had intended when he had chosen the big name that he wanted to score the movie. <laughs> but it's, again, it's one of those things where the film feels, still feels modern. Because it doesn't sound like movies like that. Sorry, sorry. Yeah,
2: I think so. No, it's just this is you're all praising the thing for something that I actually one of the reasons why I don't like it. (laughs) So you have the score that clashes, which worked for you. For me, it's kind of an example of why the film doesn't work, because you have this kind of naturalism, this kind of sub Italian neorealism that looks beautiful, but just kind of feels a little bit off for me. And then you have this lovely poetic bit in the middle where he's revealing to even when really he's saying that, you know, I kill I, I'm responsible for your brother's death. Which is very again, Romeo and Juliet, so that fits in perfectly with it with the with the clash. Mm-hmm. But that style, and like with the this I remember there's a close up of her face and the use of sound, it jars with what we have just seen with previously with the cameras a little bit further. You know, it's all kind of mid shots or 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 close 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 wides if that's a thing and all the fog etc. So you have the natural the the Sub-Italian Neorealism, if I can use that phrase. Then you have this kind of really poetic, cinematic moment. And then later on, we have... It turns into a film noir. And then at the end, it's like some homage to Metropolis or something. (laughs) It just feels... Each one of those elements kind of... When I'm watching it, clashes for me. And I'm thinking, could you just have picked one and done it really well? (laughs) Um, Or if you're going to have that bit of poetry, could we have it somewhere else or a hint of it earlier on? Um, What I do think since that's an 2008 what I did really like and what I did love was the, the sense of the, the set so when they go in interior, especially in her apartment with her dad um that look, just it looked real and you could see the kind of the the the, the, Stanislavski, the method and how that has developed over the uh, over the decades to make it look a little bit more realistic than it might have in other movies at the, at the time. Um, that I that struck me it, it looked like a real apartment as opposed to this is a set with some uh, bit of paint on in the background to make it look like cracks. That that worked. That worked a treat for me. And I did love the neorealism at the end. I thought, oh, God, this bit's good. <laughs> but it just jarred me from what I had been watching previously. That's all.
0: Again, I find that this discussion we have about neorealism and about naturalism we keep coming back to is very strange because you, you watch it and it is, for me, very heightened and very stylized from the outset. Like... Every shot in this movie is almost through some sort of mesh or through some sort of fence or through some sort of grid, yeah it's intensely stylized. You have these very intense close ups you have these Dutch angles <laughs> like Kazan is very fond of these like bright lights coming down through dark alleyways and dark corridors like it i i don't I, I know that it uses real locations and I know that it uses like actual dock workers. And I know that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. And the idea that Marlon Brando mumbling makes it naturalistic, which is, as Donald pointed out, not really how that works. It's just a <laughs> different style of performance.
2: So I think but I don't know. I, I think, think, think that's But I, I, I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with. You. That's why I said it's sub Italian realism, because you have those moments on the dock when they're getting their coins or who's coming in and you get the know you have to give the number to the guy that looks real. Mm. But then later on, you have what I, I was looking at trying to read the film, and a lot of kind of diagonal lines going across. And you have all the bars, load of bars. One stage, he's, he's trapped when he's talking to Carl Malden before he reveals the truth. He's kind of trapped. But they, to, to me, don't feel cinematic. They feel more kind of theatrical because they're a little bit, they're just a little bit too much. And the fog, mm. the constant fog, and, and the, the, the signifier for that kind of theatricality for me is the use of the pigeons. Yes. So it's just so heavy handed. So you go, Oh my god, pigeons seriously? And then and all the other imagery, the hawk and his feet and he eats the pigeon food at one stage and you go, oh, Jesus Jesus yeah another choice Marlon mm-hmm. the and pigeon then, ends
0: up dead oh, at the, the end in case you don't the get head. the symbolism and, and nobody and,
2: eats them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> food waste and, uh, I love
0: that that's the food waste not <laughs> the broken like whiskey or brandy Andrew's <laughs> like I could really eat a pigeon <laughs> sorry Connor but
2: that to me that undermined then, all the other kind of images that you see because you know I'm, I'm, I'm again this is just me <laughs> I'm in that frame of mind thinking bloody pigeons oh bloody fog of <laughs> course <laughs> you know oh I, the wise but the wise I, beggar oh yeah what's next I, <laughs> so it just I, put well, me in the wrong frame of mind
0: they love the fog like i think that again donald kind of mentioned um boris kaufman we should mention this is the second episode that donald's been on talking about the work of boris kaufman he also did 12 angry men i believe as well
3: oh that's quite true yeah yeah as uh, I which saying. is a film
0: where
1: we all second time we've spoken about uh lee j cobb
0: yes as well in yeah. yes that's right um uh, but also like that that fog is beautiful like it's a gorgeous looking film i i really like that because You don't normally get to see that stuff in a black and white film, and I will acknowledge I'm not as steeped in the golden age of Hollywood as I should be, but typically they tend to be more studio set, they tend to be more controlled, you don't tend to see that sort of like real life space, real life environmental factor in films from this era, in this way. I think Martin Scorsese makes the point of like, it's, you know, this was the first time Martin Scorsese felt like he was on the same planet. Of right. the movie that he was watching right. and i think the fog works beautifully because you and again it, it's not the naturalism although that's you know that's what you say it is because it's real fog mm. it works thematically because you have these wonderful shots of like terry up on the roof with the pigeons and you can see the outline of the new york city skyline behind him but just about yeah it's like obscured through the fog you can see the outline of the buildings you can't see the details so all of a sudden it's it's right there but it's out of reach it's just Perfect in a way that you know Kazan couldn't have planned despite the man's ego he could not control the weather Sp- but it looks gorgeous
2: supposedly Sorry. he wanted to look at gorgeous I suppose what well, my, my problem isn't necessarily that fog it's when that fog becomes <laughs> the smoke and and the smoke as well again when he comes out every time he comes out of that church there's smoke everywhere yeah and where's that yeah. smoke coming from? Why is there smoke everywhere all the time? There's,
0: there's a point where he walks funny. across a green and he walks <laughs> right. through a little pool yeah. of fog. I, I loved it.
1: It's
2: a moral it's, fog, it's, it's, Connor. It's a moral
0: it's, fog. It's kind
2: I know of it's a moral fog. That's what's annoying me. On a but, stage, on a stage, you're allowed these big metaphors. There's a different <laughs> world, and you're allowed to have them. I just but isn't
3: can I can I ask a technical? Point? Isn't that the isn't that the the steam rather than the oh, fog I, from the heating yeah, system yeah. that which I mean I'm not and obviously you have that in New York City where you have steam heating and the steam rises from the grates every It doesn't happen too so much now but I
2: assume
3: in New Jersey you had the same thing so I think that's what it is isn't it isn't it
2: isn't it Am I not You've wrong? got the fog, you've got the steam, and you've got the the barrels of of you've got the barrels of the fire, and you've got just general. Well, Kazan I, I, showed up on the first yeah. week of shooting and believe, was like, "This
0: is terrible." I believe, like Kazan was like, "This is ruined. The movie is ruined." I want clear blue skies, and I, I'm not
1: getting them. I believe uh, uh, the the movie explains this when it's <laughs> when it's revealed that people t- people talk while smoking cigars. So there's just smoke everywhere <laughs> right. all the time. It was yeah. a different. T- Listeners were too young to remember yeah. <laughs> back
0: before the smoking ban in New York City. That was just what New York was like.
3: All yeah. those cigaretting
2: yeah. inappropriate then, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Um. All right. Is there anything else we want to talk about the movie? Anything that we haven't discussed? Anything jumping out at people? So, Connor.
2: So, I, I, I was trying to figure out how would I spin this to get a little bit of a conversation in the class? A little bit of controversy with my higher level 60ers as they're coming in after January. So, what I'd probably ask them is about the ending. So, what do they think about the ending? And then I'd suggest, is the ending actually two things? Um, One involves the relationship and one involves the politics. So is the ending about how a priest has manipulated a situation so that the capitalist, factory owner, or in this case, dock owner, can manipulate and control the workforce so that they stay down and in place where they belong. So religion and capitalism coming together to keep the man down. That's the first one. And then I'd ask them. What, so you're saying, is Jimmy
0: Friendly the hero of this film? That's the Jim, question that you are daring to ask. This is. What, I'm just saying
2: this is what the priest has done. Is, it's like the ending, with, is, the ending of Metropolis. <laughs> you know, the shaking of the hands. You stay in your space. I'll stay in mine. Don't be trying to take over nothing. Don't be too looking for money. And, and is, with that. Is the church there to keep them in kind of bubble brained
1: acquiescence?
2: Absolutely. has yeah. created a martyr. He literally said, you better get up, sonny boy. He's the one. You better snitch. Hmm. He knows he's going to get beaten up. He's nearly dead, the old rising Christ. And he's saying, come on, you have to lead them. He leads them, beaten and bruised, the resurrection. There's the, the owner. He, I think, I'm think i not too sure, I could be wrong, but I think there's a cut from the owner to, I'm probably wrong, I'm probably imagining it, <laughs> to, to, to the priest with Eve Mary saint next to him. And he, they're all happy out now. The workers are where they should be, downtrodden. And that's the second thing. <laughs> the second thing is it's also a film about how a man manipulates the situation, gets a woman drunk and shuts down her aspirations to further herself as well so that she also will stay down and within the working class system and just live with him in an apartment as he probably becomes corrupt himself.
1: I promised Dugan that I would <laughs> fight with him till the end, so I'm going to get another person killed. <laughs> um, it's it's what Dugan would have wanted. Yeah. But, by the way,
0: we should note that, obviously, as we mentioned, this was inspired by the real-life corruption on the real New York Docklands. When it came out, there was this big uproar of the movie is sending a political message to the dock workers of America to vote out, is it the IAL, the, like, the labor That's union right. that is famously corrupt? and instead they went on to win the next three elections
3: <laughs> but um... well, um it, it it does speak to I mean in historical terms it does speak to the way in which the very different way in which unions are regarded in the United States at that stage to a certain extent now but I think a large part of that has changed and I don't mean in terms of their status as, as uh, organising labour I mean in terms of the fact that at that point justifiably they were associated with massive corruption and with backhanders in a way that I don't think unions are in um, or were in Ireland or the UK oh, or Europe, France or yeah. whatever. I mean,
2: well, I'm 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 yeah. quite heavily involved in my union and I've got no backhands. Well, not yet, anyway. <laughs> no, <I know. laughs> so, you <know. laughs> when you go into your
0: meetings, it's in the back of a bar and you play with a pool ball while Lee J. Call pats you that's, all over. Yeah, that's that's
2: that's the other
1: thing. Everybody's got a racket, Connor.
3: <laughs> the best the best that I could do, I, I, was, I was a local convener in the Palace Theatre of to the British Entertainment Communications Trade Union. At, um, and I pretty, I, I do not remember much of uh, many huge crates of Cuban cigars being sent around to the stage door. So I think it is, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one that actually, and I don't, I don't think, to be fair, I think that, that this would not be the caricature of American unions now. But in the 50s and the 60s, obviously Jimmy Hoffa playing a large part in that. It, this was a, this was a
1: yeah.
3: as I understand it, not entirely unjustified caricature of American unions out stage as they were perceived in a way that was not the case in, in Western Europe.
0: I mean, it's a very different culture with regards to unions even now. where like I think in America there's it's, less acceptance. It, we, of,
1: we've actually moved on a lot from The Wire season too. We, we've
0: come a long way <laughs> yeah. from the Frank yeah. Sabatka's of this world. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But the the other thing to mention is, again, just the aspect ratio of this, which I find absolutely fascinating, just because we talked about this being a movie that exists at a point where Hollywood is in transition. And Donald, you mentioned this earlier, so maybe I'll hand over to you in a moment, but the TV is here. Hollywood is not sure how to compete with it. You have this idea of widescreen coming in, but you yeah. also have the the question of like, do the cinemas that don't have widescreens, they're also going to have to screen our movies as well. And how do we film for the various aspect ratios mm-hmm. while, you know, on, while without, Maximizing cost and without having to renovate theaters, which are already seeing a, a decline Tommy in business. As well.
1: What <laughs> Tommy Wiseau just have three
0: cameras? <laughs> That's it. You have three cameras running <laughs> side to side. Well, obviously, yeah. You you shoot the when they're filming it on the viewfinder, they would famously draw the lines for the three different aspect ratios. They would protect the frame, basically, is what they do. And you can yeah. watch this movie in three different aspect ratios. Yeah. Um, you can watch it in like one six six, one eight eight, and then is it what three four? The standard television aspect mm. ratio. I think one six six is the expected mm. one which is the one that fills a modern television set absolutely perfectly. And it's kind of fascinating how, mm-hmm. having watched all three versions, they, they are slightly different films. Um, Did in you that... watch
1: them at the same time?
0: No, <laughs> not like Godfather Part 3. I didn't watch them Godfather Part 3 style, where I watched the two versions side by side and just paused one whenever it, like a scene was removed or added.
2: You didn't? Did you really? I,
0: I, I... Connor, the things I do for this podcast, I'm a professional. <laughs>
2: that is fantastic. That is funny. <laughs> It was That's It
0: was a fascinating experience because they're the same movie just with slightly different color grading. Um it's remarkable. <laughs> but I, I Like, if you put the widescreen, it becomes a lot more claustrophobic, which is fascinating. Like, the scenes, mm, even yeah. the scenes on the rooftops, which are big open shots, become claustrophobic. R- that right. scene in the back of the taxi, which I'm sure we we haven't actually talked about that much. Yeah, Famous story about that scene. Apparently, that was one of only two sets that was used for the film. The other one was the Mr. Big set that was used.
3: And I presume you know the extraordinary story about the about yes. and Blind. Go t- tell it there. Yeah, this is <laughs> one of the things that's fascinating is that, it's sort of one of those things. The first time someone said it to you, first you read, "Oh yeah, Hawkins never occurred to me." Oh, I know, I know why, yeah. especially because the film was set in the early nineteen fifties in New Jersey, and I thought, oh, maybe, maybe there were Venetian blinds in the background <laughs> <laughs> in the back, in the back uh, in window, those fancy
0: taxis. The taxis that you get when you're on mob money. So um.
3: it's one, one of those things where you're like, there's all kinds of things you see in movies in the 40s <laughs> and 50s and so forth. they like, that's weird. Oh, well, that just, that's, that's how it was then. Until someone t- until someone turned around and said, like, you have noticed that there's the Venetian blind in the back of the town. Ta- you don't have Venetian blinds <laughs> in the back of the town. Which apparently was because they turned up that day and the green screen wasn't ready. No. And so they had to mock up the set. It isn't that
0: the green screen wasn't ready. it's because Sam Spiegel, who was the famously penny pitching producer, refused yeah. to pay for the green screen or the rewwriting right 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 and yeah. Brando, I believe had to leave at four p m for psychoanalysis right. <laughs> um which was his term of contract, so they literally the the set the deal was we need to get this shot as quickly as possible. Can you get some Venetian blinds in the back of this taxi? It's
3: funny as well like you're talking about about um. The, the conflict with television and this looks like a, a it's shot like a, a bit of tele, a bit of telly in that same sense it's like they, they haven't got the, the green up. screen for whatever reason it wasn't there it's all because it was all sat rather mechanically uh, in this back seat which is clearly on a set and they haven't even bothered or haven't been able <laughs> to to give the impression of the car traveling so it's a fascinating thing in that sense it does in that sense look uh, look like television but that war with television, I'm not getting away from that scene because we obviously have talked a bit about that. It's a dialogue. Um, I think if anyone doesn't know, this is obviously, I could have been a contender um, speech, which turns up many years later in um, Raging Bull um at um i mean uh, the
0: other great black and white film the only subsequent <laughs> great black and white american film yeah, well, exactly
3: that's why i think there was none of the there was the, the next black and white film actually, as i as i understand it there was uh, to, in um, american <laughs> cinema <history>. um, but, <laughs> but um yeah but it's that that there were there were a number of ways in which hollywood panicked about television um and there were a number of things they thought they could offer to the public you couldn't get in One obviously obviously was spectacles so you had what was the um um uh how the west was one shot in? That's the one where even now, is it? Is that the one that's completely like wide it's... I think it is I think it is Vista. Yeah, I, 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 and three the three screens, isn't it? C- yeah, exactly. Three and and in fact if you watch it now on television, you can see the lines even now t-
2: and <laughs> so or, or trees or or edges of cabins. Is what in, I, yeah, to, yeah, even that that, that yeah, was shot yeah, the yeah. Tommy yeah.
3: Wiseau
0: method to, dis- to, to to summarize for Andrew where they had three cameras pointing <laughs> in three different directions. Sorry.
3: Yeah, and even now, even now on television, I so say you can see. I mean, where they haven't got the trees yeah. in as corner, was explaining, If you if it's just it was just like a horizon. It seems like you know, lines <laughs> to, to, uh, where the two screens mesh. But the other thing that they thought that they could offer to the public they wouldn't get was you know a kind of grittiness and a reality that television didn't do. Or, but in fact, it did ultimately, and not that soon after this. And this is the sort of scene you got. Well, you can go and see serious drama like this with actors from the stage, like Rod Steiger. And Marlon Brando, but of course, like you know, not too far after that. Or maybe it was same sort of same sort of era. You had Marty, and you had you know stuff like that, where you had tele- television with you know with, with like In the case of Marty, actually were writing the kind of things <laughs> that Hollywood felt it could only do on television. So that didn't actually play out quite the way that they thought. But that, but that's I think is. And I get to me. I was saying this to you, Darren the other day about that. Um, I felt that I made a bit of a rod for my back. Yes coming into this podcast because um uh, earlier this year when we we're doing our kind of um endless um stuff on the oscars that i did a, a a listicle um on the 25 uh best uh winners of the lead acting oscar both male and female and the role that made my own back in this podcast was yes i did put marlon brando in on the waterfront at number one actually let me just uh, give you the top 10 just to um for the sake of it um, uh, I'm spooling down here. Always, always thrilling thing on podcasts have to talk over spooling <laughs> it down. We'll um, put in some like top of the pop yes. music behind you as well. Exactly. Okay. We'll put in put in um, um, rattlesnakes <laughs> by um, by Lloyd Cole and the commercials That um, I don't know um, if we have clearance for this, but okay. This is the point. This <laughs> yeah. is the point where the, that joke
1: I was thinking of is a good thing. They they had those Venetian blinds, so we wouldn't have that uh, scene, or it could have been curtains for that scene. Nice, oh, well played, dear. I
0: love it, I love
3: it so much uh, number, 10. <laughs> number 10 Number uh, 10, Judy Holliday uh, in Born Yesterday You
1: could use a little education yourself if you ask me Which is
3: an interesting one because that was arguably the most stacked best actress of all time She bet Betty da- beat Betty Davis and all about even Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard And I'm saying that's not that outrageous to win uh, Number 9, Elizabeth Taylor in Who's Afraid of Junior Wolf? I want to stop it, Mother.
2: I hope that was an empty bottle, George. You can't afford to waste good liquor. Not on your salary. Not on an associate professor's salary.
3: Number eight, Maggie Smith in The Prime Minister in Brody. I will not stand quietly by and allow myself to be crucified by a woman whose fetid frustration has overcome her judgment. If scandal is to your taste, Miss Mackay, I shall give you a feast. I am a teacher. I am a teacher first, last, always. Do you imagine that for one instant I will let that be taken from me without a fight? Number seven, Frederick Marsh in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That you prefer a gentleman, eh? One of those fine-mannered, virtuous and honourable gentlemen. One of those canting hypocrites who like your legs but talk about your gut. Number six, Jack Nicholson in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest.
1: What do you think you are, for
0: Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You're no crazier than the
1: average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it.
3: Number five, Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. You've got three to choose from there. That's what I went for. Number four, Liza Minnelli in Cabaret. Life is a
1: cabaret, oh chum. Come to the cabaret.
3: Number three, Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce.
1: Get
0: your things out of this house right now before I throw them into the street and you with them. Get out before I kill you.
3: And you could probably guess top two. Number two, Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. Well, number one, Marlon Brandon on The Waterfront. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender, I could have been somebody, instead of a bum, which is what I am, let's face it. Both of whom, of course, get this, It's in so neatly to what we're talking about right now, both of whom get to declaim the uh, scene from the back of the taxi cab in On the Waterfront in their performances. Um, but yeah, but I think, I think, what we was saying to Darren was that I think ultimately I do... I do sort of stand by that. I mean, obviously, listicles are all silly things that are just knocked off, and you know, putting these things into lists makes absolutely no sense. But in the sense that I have done it and people do these things, I do kind of stand by that because it was coming, he, he was making up the rules to a certain extent here, which is not something you could quite say of his immediate successor, who was De Niro, the next generation, right after him, um, and not something you could say about the. Uh, the more theatrical, the the, the um, broader uh, um, act- actors and actresses in the golden age that are also mentioned in that list. He was, to a certain extent, making up the rules, not in his own, obviously. This has come through the Actors Studio with people like Kazan um, and so forth. And so in that sense, I think it does kind of stand apart as a pivot, in a way, The other performances I mentioned in that list do not.
0: I mean, the thing about Brando is that you mentioned that he turned this down. Like, I believe he was Kazan's first choice for this, because obviously he had a long association with Kazan. Kazan found him on stage. He would brought him to the screen with the streetcar named Desire. Um, They'd obviously done via uh, Zapretta as well. Uh, Apparently he was reluctant to do it. Like, there's there's a really great quote from him where he talks about feeling so betrayed by the Huak testimony, where he's like, I, I could never, never work for him again. And then in the same conversation is like, but on the other hand, we work really well together. I guess I could only work for him a few more times. And in fact, <laughs> <laughs> this was the last of their collaborations, I believe, as well. Um, but it's it's quite remarkable. Again, like this is the thing where I believe the argument about Brando is that Although his style is very theatrical for all the reasons we mentioned. He likes to play with objects. I mean, very famously in The Godfather, he finds the cat and just starts petting the cat. Um, But he doesn't like doing the same thing over and over again. In fact, like, that's the thing. Even between scenes, he will improvise. Even between um, takes, he will improvise. Um, It's very hard to get him to say the same particularly now that he's dead but it was always very hard to get him to say the same line uh, in multiple takes and he actors would have to kind of react to that i think very famously that was the thing that kazan liked about having brando on set was that he would force other actors to become looser just by being brando
1: i think part part of the reason why actors are striking is because they're trying to make marlon brando say um, the things they want (laughs) that is very fair
2: (laughs) that's one of the big issues there's a bit in the film i don't know if you guys spotted it where Eva Marie Saint meets him outside the the, the the dockyard near the beginning and she's arguing with him and she hits him but she actually hits him and there's a moment where she's quite clear doesn't know if they're got to keep going and there's a moment where Marlon Brando clearly looks off camera he doesn't look at the camera just looks <laughs> off camera and then she's trying not to laugh but to be fair, it added a huge amount to the to the scene. It 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 came across as a bit more real because they're both reaction. Oh my god, I actually hit the guy, and he's going, "Oh my god, she actually hit me." And um, <laughs> it just it worked it worked wonderfully in the in the, in the particular moment.
0: I mean, there's a very famous example of this where the character Tammy or more- the actor Tammy Morello, who played Tilio, who is an actual real life boxer, one- apparently Kazan the- punched him at one point during <laughs> the movie, and apparently he punched Kazan right back. Oh my god, yeah, sorry.
2: I loved I loved it- those guys though. I miss I miss faces. I miss faces like that in movies. There should be more faces. They're brilliant. They're brilliant. They really are.
1: Abe Simon and uh, Tony Galento, and you mentioned Tommy Moriello. They all fought uh, Joe Lewis for the (laughs) for for the the heavyweight championship of the world. So uh, yeah, um, (laughs) incredible. Tony Galento was a real um character. He used to always do these kind of um. Uh, humorous kind of uh, showcases where he'd be d- drinking from these huge big steins of beer um, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Sorry, I probably don't get across how much of a character he was. <laughs> <laughs> Keep in mind it was the 50. <laughs> People only drank reasonable amounts of beer
0: in the 50. You don't understand. It was a different time. Um, to, 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 to the point about Brando, I get like, part of me is kind of impressed obviously the legend that has come up around brando as you mentioned you put him at the top of your listicle the one of the most influential performances ever uh the last actor to do anything interesting with the form since the ancient troubadours or whatever it is that ethan hawke (laughs) would argue about him but like the the idea that like a large part of it seems to have come from his frustration with doing the same thing over and over again like he didn't like theater because he could not do the same play night after night after night he just found it unfulfilling in a way that stage actors generally don't that's the difficulty
1: with theater is trying to maintain that energy like and you you have to go to great lengths to try and get that kind of performance after performance it's not something i think that even comes naturally to a stage actor
0: yeah no i i can't imagine how difficult it is and i i understand why for many screen actors there's a sense of well i went to theater to really learn how to act Mm. because it's it's an endurance sport you're doing the same thing night after night and you have to deliver constantly you have to hit your mark constantly there's no margin of error but I do like that Brando, like, and and not to denigrate what Brando did and not to downplay what he did, but it, I love that how much of it seems to have come from the fact that he really didn't want to do as much as was asked of him, of him at any given moment, no. where, <laughs> like,
3: so much... Even, he- even learn the lines yes. later on, that, um, I, mean, I mean, I'm not even enough to have to get to Apocalypse Now, even in The Godfather, those famous shots of, of Robert Duvall holding up <laughs> the dialogue in front of him as he's delivering this dialogue.
0: I mean, here, even here, like, he's streamlining, like, that famous quote that you mentioned I could have had class, I could have been a contender, I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am, let's face it. That's like a condensed version of what Bud Schulberg had written in the script. And he was just like, right. This is what I'm saying. And it ends yeah. up becoming. Like this perfect thing, and again, that's the the Kazan thing that he talks about. When like what he loved about Brando was like taking lines of dialogue out and just counting on the actor to sell it through minimal, not minimalism, because he's playing with his hands, but through expression, yeah, um, through through performance rather than dialogue. Um, but all right, Donald, is there anything else you want to talk about the movie? Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at you? No, point? I
3: think we've been through it. I think we've been through it. That um, uh, it, um it's an extraordinary kind of like uh uh. uh, uh a compilation of a great deal that was going on in Hollywood and the wider world of theater and so forth at the time, all condensed on into a fairly racy hour and 40 minutes, but, um, no, I think we've, we've touched on most things. All right
1: then. And Andrew, what about yourself? No, no, I, 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 I think I've, I've, I've enjoyed this discussion. We've covered our usual bullshit. We have organically, <laughs> which is quite impressive. Yeah. Like,
0: uh, we don't even do a special segment at the end talking about the bent cigarette, which I thought was inappropriate. Um, All right, then what we do at the end of the podcast, because this is a leaving search season, we're going to ask our guests to pick their own comparative texts, texts that they think relate to this movie. We're going to try and emphasize books and plays as opposed to films and TV shows because we're sophisticated, Um, you know, but uh, don't feel like you have to. So to give Connor to give Donald a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first.
1: I'm going to recommend a couple of kind of tangentially um, related stories. One of them is one that I'm, this is kind of cheating on our, on our, on the traditional rules that I set myself. That I yes. can't recommend something that I'm currently reading, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to recommend, and it was mentioned actually by Donald. So apologies if I've taken yours mm. is a uh, great expectations it's a a coming of age story and a morality play and uh, it's 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 but it's also hilarious it is so entertaining it's unreal um and 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 i'm just enjoying it a great deal i have a really really soft spot for joe gargery the uh the 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 black
3: What larks, what larks, pep. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> people he forget is so that, like, endearing. Yeah, people yeah.
1: forget that like back in
0: Dickens was writing periodics. Like he was writing basically pulpy stuff to be read on a yeah. weekly basis, serialized, yeah.
2: Exactly. The- I taught I taught Great Expectations once and I had a little copy of it. And my dad, my dad's old copy, and I'm walking around the class being very English teachery. This is way back when. I think this could be when I first started teaching. I think I had hair. And I walked around the class reading Great Expectations. The class was really quiet, and I thought, wow, this is great. Because they usually weren't quiet back then. I really got them. And I got to the top of the class, and there was a porn mag opened up at the front. (laughs) So I sat down, put down very carefully my Great Expectations, picked up the pornography, flicked through it, opened my drawer, threw it in, and said, thanks very much, gentlemen. My wife is away for the weekend. And I picked the book back up and continued reading. I got a round of applause at the end of the class. They waited till the end, a round of applause, and on the way out they said, well done, sir, well done, you, you did that well.
0: You should have read one of the articles. I hear they're very convincing. <laughs> they were very short articles.
2: <laughs> um, and
0: Connor, what would you recommend? I've, what would I've be got, your comparative text?
2: Well, one of them's actually on the, on the list at the moment. The Crucible uh, by Miller. So that's on the list. Um. So it's the only way maybe I might actually teach it if I put those two together, but I'll end up talking about the hueck. And the other one is an obvious one as well, uh, The Grapes of Wroth, um, which I think the Ford film, I'd put the Ford film above this, but if we just, just take the book, um, Grapes of Wroth and Crucible would be my two choices.
0: I'd love by the fact that we've been talking about the legacy of Marlon Brando and the generation of actors that followed and Huac all evening and never once mentioned Al Pacino. Um, all right, so <laughs> Donald, what would be your suggested comparative text?
3: I don't think I think I really have a suggested part of text. I mean, I think if you're looking at what the real revolution that was promised by this film, I kind of would look towards the end of the decade and think of a film like John Cassavetes' Shadows. Not Shadows. Do I mean Shadows? I do mean Shadows, don't I? Yeah, the first one. I do. Scorsese certainly agrees with yeah, you. That's yeah, a, that's that's the first one. Yeah, so um, I think was. The, Produced um, by British, British Lion Films, are, as if I remember correctly, that they would so much trouble getting money. He had to go to England to British Lion to get to get them to make it. But that seemed to me, is um, in what you were talking about, Darren, earlier on about the fact that this is a film um, that is often quoted as a key text in American cinema, Catholic Naturalism. And we've all discussed <laughs> the fact that you know that it's in fact enormously theatrical. And you saw with. Casavetes, I think, at at that stage, and you had seen, to a certain extent, with the Italian neorealists beforehand, um, something entirely different. I think with Casavetes, with that film, towards the end of the 1950s, you saw a more genuine and more fluid and more um, seat-of-the-pants attempt to get at what some people have claimed on the waterfront to be. Though, to be fair, I don't think Kazan or even Brando would claim that it was... Operating in the same sphere as that film, it's it's not a
0: mumble core. It's not like an, a you know progenitor of mumble core. I don't think
3: you know. It's no an
0: example of like no. we mentioned the Gerwick uh, post. The I point.
3: mean, also I mean films about. I mean, I mean, it's interesting. Like you know, films about unions. I mean, they're, they're in the fifties. I mean, one thing I do think about that we were saying earlier on. Actually, I was saying earlier on about um, the different attitudes towards unions in um, the United States and in Britain and obviously also in also in Ireland. But it is interesting how in Britain, like the two. Most prominent films about unions in the nineteen fifties were *The Angry Silence* and *I'm All Right, Jack*, mm-hmm. both of which are, in no, in essentially politically far more critical of the notion of a union as opposed to the individual behaviours of unions. If you know, get the distinction I'm making there. Um, in *On the Waterfront*, I mean, one is the film with Richard Attenborough who was sent to Coventry um, uh, because uh, he doesn't joined in an unofficial strike, and his his life has made hell, and and I'm all right, Jack, as this, which, to be fair, is in some ways kind of like, you know, equally as mean about the uh, management of this as about the unions, Peter Sellers pays this incredibly pompous um, uh, um, uh, 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 pernickety uh, union leader, but I think those are interesting countertexts, if you like, um, from a different country.
1: With the with the time and motion surveys that he's doing, yeah, and yeah, yeah, no, it's in, it's 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 incredible. And
3: his eulogy, his eulogies to life in Soviet Russia was like ballet in the evening. <laughs> to get sort of <laughs> he loves it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> in terms of comparative text for myself, I would. Recommend is a strong word, but I think it was a great read. It's it's a memoir that has really stuck with me, um, A Life by Elia Kazan, which is essentially one man's unapologetic self-justification. Um, it reminds me a lot of the, the recent Brian Cox celebrity memoir, except obviously with a lot more baggage behind it, where it is an incredibly uh, self-assured piece of writing uh, that maybe hasn't aged particularly well, but I think does what something like that should do, which is to get you inside the head um of its subject and then the other point of rec- the other point of comparison i'd mention is something like is a philip roth's uh, plot against america which i read years and years ago uh which yeah. was adapted into a miniseries starring zoe kazan to bring a connection back around here again and is another story about a highly political situation in the united states uh in the middle of the American 20th century and so therefore i think maybe makes an interesting kind of counterpoint to this um sure. and i guess maybe the bible um is an obvious point of comparison <laughs> here so you can read about you know Another saviour. Maybe not quite as good as this one. Um, all right, then. Tell so, you about another cool book. <laughs> <laughs> so, Donald, where can we find you? What are you got? If listeners want a bit more Donald Clark in their lives, where can they find you? Watch out, watch up to.
3: You'll find me in the Irish Times, irishtimes.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, oh, you can go and buy the newspaper if you're feeling enormously adventurous, That um, which uh, is, is still out there at uh, Monday through Saturday. Um, I also appear on RTE reasonably frequently on um, arena arena Arena. on a thursday night and you will be
0: in venice
3: yes in terms of what's what's coming up soon um, or will have happened already i yes i think this will be emerging (laughs) at the end of september and you already know what's won the golden lion in venice and you will know by that if against what looked like the odds right now if movie stars turned up (laughs) um for that film festival yes we were all a bit nervous about that because we all felt that um as a result of, of obviously talking here about once again we get back to unions and, and, and industrial uh, relations. Um that as a result of the actors strike there was a feeling that Venice would well not like Venice was was that studios would panic and not send all their big films um to Venice. But they did in the end. Basically the, and this, that, that Nervous.
0: Challengers is the only one that got pulled, right? That's the one. yeah.
3: Point. Well, Challenger was pulled beforehand, so everyone thought, "Uh oh, this is a this is a bad sign," because um, it was pulled before the main announcement came out. But as it transpired. All the big shots are there, including, conveniently for this podcast, um, Bradley Cooper uh, as Leonard <laughs> Bernstein in Maestro uh, for Netflix. So there you go. That'll, maybe there the, may be scenes in there depicting the creation of this film. Who knows? Um, and also William Freakin's final film as well, The Cane Mutant. In there. That's right. Yes, that that was announced. I mean, in bet- in between um, the announcement of the program, uh, his version of that uh, uh, old warhorse, the theatrical old theatrical warhorse, the um, Kane uh, uh, the um, the Kane Mutiny Trial. What's it called again? The Kane Mutiny. Is it trial? Trial It's longer than that. Okay. Um, court martial. But court martial. Thank you. That um, that that. Uh, that with Kiefer Sutherland um, and Jason Clark. In between the announcement of that arriving and the film actually playing, which it will have done by the time you hear this, um, William Friedkin sadly died. Yes. Yeah, so that will be an emotional moment at um, when his uh, his last film was premiered posthumously.
0: And Connor. You are launching a new podcast under the two fifty bracket two fifty productions. We will negotiate <laughs> the terms later um but where can we find you what yet? Yeah, Watch up to
2: so I'm on Twitter at Connor Smurf. My uh podcast will be released dropping on the first of October. I'm oh. going to go for Sunday because nobody else has taken Sunday. so obviously so tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow yes the first this is a great idea,
1: Connor. We found that having a podcast on a Saturday. And and some weird quirk of what we've done with Stitcher can mean that it's in the front of of, of
2: people's feed
1: for quite
0: a while until Monday. I think it saves yeah. over the weekend.
2: But mine is a bit more kind of prosaic. It's because I know teachers on Sunday is when you stop and you kind of thinking about what you'll do and you'll be flipping around. So I know teachers are online, and especially on Sunday mornings. I've discovered right. <laughs> Sunday mornings <laughs> and Sunday evenings teachers are online so that's <laughs> uh, so th- but the, the aim of the podcast is that the films on the leaving Cert and the junior cycle 20 minutes so that you can use them in class i just look at one scene you play it and you pause it and you listen to me talking and you decide whether you agree or disagree you can contact me afterwards on that but it's their 20 minute one scene podcast very short uh, you can find me there you can also find me i'm going to plug that book again I have the big book out you can also find me I've written a chapter on how to teach film because I have that size of an ego in the in the you're pers- no
0: Elia Kazan
2: I'm <laughs> no Elia <Elliot> Kazan Perspectives <laughs> I have to get through the long title give me a second. One second Perspectives on the teaching of English in post-primary education edited by edited by Kevin Cahill and Neve Denny published by UCC so just Google Kevin Cahill and teaching English and it'll come up somewhere and I have a chapter in that or check the show notes and I think that's Fantastic. it. Oh, I wanted to give one more quote because uh, you're about to wrap up. So, so I've got a, quote from Billy, a Billy Bragg. One second. Now this is the, to, to wrap up. I think what we've discussed, well, here comes the future and you can't run from it. If you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it. So there we go.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Donald, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, Connor, for doing all five weeks of this. We really appreciate it. It's been great fun. If they change the course next year, we may get you back for a special bonus episode. Um, we will be back next weekend, where we are doing something interesting. Now, earlier in the year, we covered all six Chucky films. Yeah. We dropped them all in one day. That may <laughs> have been a mistake in terms of like getting listenership to engage with it, but people <laughs> seem to have liked it, which is good. So we're going to next ahead the of time. The real sickos enjoyed it ahead of time. This October, we are covering the Halloween franchise. We are going to cover at least 8 of the first 13 Halloween movies between now and Halloween Day. Joining us for that season, the fantastic Joey Kyo, uh, the LGG, the Living Dead Girl, who's been a feature of all our Halloween episodes to date, or most of our Halloween episodes to date. And to kick us off, we have a very special guest, the fantastic Dr. Bernice Murphy, who will be joining us to talk about John Carpenter's classic horror movie, Halloween. Join us next Saturday. Thank you so much, Connor. Thank you so much, Donald. Cheers. Cheers
1: thank you so much, much guys. Thank that you. was brilliant.
2: I, I got to say, gentlemen, before you kick me off, I know we've stopped recording, but this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me on. It's it was it been a, a lovely way to spend the last few weeks. Th- thank you so
1: much, Connor. It, it was like one of life's great uh, uh, pleasures and surprises when um, we, who, I had never heard you speak, and then you come on and you sound like John Creeden. <laughs> like, it's amazing.
0: <laughs> I, 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 I love that Andrew's not like we. I never spoken to you. I didn't know what your ideas were like. i wasn't sure <laughs> they were going to be a good no, conversation. No like, a a a silky for voice. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's been fantastic. It was a great idea from Andrew. Thank you very much for doing
2: it. as a, as a teacher. But as a teacher, we never talk about texts like this. Like we don't, we talk about pedag- pedagogy and teaching and all. I do this and I do that, but one of the big things we're missing is just sitting down and talking about, you know, the texts and discussing them. So this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed it and yeah. enlightening as well. So thanks for that.
0: Well, take take care, guys. Take care. See you soon, Donald. Um, see you soon, Connor.
1: Thank you so much. Ken.